Welcome to Hackstack, the show that gives you all the tips, tricks and advice you need to increase your productivity, lower your stress level and find ultimate purpose in life. All done, one simple step at a time. And now, here is your host, Coz. Yo, yo, yo. How you guys doing? Man, we are on episode number nine. Just seems like yesterday I did episode number eight. No, just kidding. Seems like just yesterday I started this podcast, and uh, here we are, up and running, episode number nine. We actually, I think there is only one more episode where I would consider uh, these episodes prerequisites. You know, I say this time and time again, hey, these episodes build off each other. Uh, If you want to get the most out of the show, you need to listen to them in chronological order. Well, As it turns out, I think episode number 10 will be the end of what I call the prerequisites. Uh, They are the building blocks for every other aspect of life that you really want to achieve greatness in. So to use the golf analogy again, uh, this is just your normal golf stroke. Episode 1 through 10, we're just trying to get the basics down. And what I consider a major, major part of that basic strategy is fitness and exercise. I work out. <laughs> That's right. Because it's so critically important because it affects so much of your life. It affects your energy level. It affects uh, the way you think about yourself. Uh, it obviously affects your health. And you see this so many times where people strive and achieve and they, and they hit all these like financial goals and uh, only to end up uh, in their later years to uh, have not taken care of their body, and they really, really pay the price for that. So they spend all this time trying to make money, and then in the later years, they spend all their money trying to get their health back. So if you can avoid that conundrum, um, and again, you, you're pushing your purpose up the ladder, but we really want to focus on your health, and this to me is pretty much a requirement if you want to be a, a high achiever. That's going to Uh, affect every aspect of your life. So we actually have a really, really long episode to get through this show. And it's so long, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. At the very end of the episode, after the outro, I'm going to have a little bit of extra credit. And the extra credit is for anyone that has ever had back problems or know someone that has had back problems. Uh, It's specifically for that. I'll go over a a couple little hacks that I do, uh, but then I'm going to play a podcast that basically deals nothing but back problems and some of the misconceptions that that people have and and how to deal with that. But I know that doesn't apply to everyone, so I'm going to start a new feature. It's called Extra Credit. You can stick around. You can listen to that. And I'll probably do Extra Credit almost every episode who knows i don't know but (laughs) stick around and you can check that out if you so desire uh but right now we're going to talk about uh exercise a little bit and what is the one thing that people do when it comes to exercise they make excuses as to why they don't exercise so we are going to start this show off with a nike commercial So this commercial starts off in a gymnasium 
and the camera is on a really tight shot on this guy's uh, face, and they and you can tell he's dribbling a basketball, and he just <laughs> he, he's dribbling a basketball. You can tell he's working kind of hard, and he just starts rattling off like all the excuses that he has ever heard in his life. So it's pretty funny, and uh, just listen to these excuses and see how many of those uh, that you have been guilty of saying. All right, check this out. I'm too weak, too slow, too big. I ate too much for breakfast. Got a headache. It's raining. My dog is sick. I can't right now. I'm not inspired. It makes me smell bad. I'm allergic to stuff. I'm fat. I'm thin. It's too hot. I'm not right. I've got shin splints. Headache. I'm distracted. I'm exerting myself too much. I'd love to really, but I can't. I just can't. My favorite show is on. I got a case of the Mondays, the Tuesdays, the Wednesdays. I don't want to do this. I'm gonna do something else. After New Year's. Next week. I might make a mistake. I got homework. Well, I feel bloated. I have gas. I got a hot date. My coach hates me. Mom won't let me. I bruise easily. It's too dark. It's too cold. My blister hurts. This is dangerous. <sighs> Sorry, I don't have a bike. I didn't get enough sleep. My tummy hurts. It's not in my jeans. I don't want to look all tired out. I need a better coach. I don't like getting tackled. I have a stomach ache. I'm not the athletic type. I want to get sweaty. I have better things to do. I don't want to slow you down. I have to do this? As soon as I get a promotion. I think I'll sit this one out. And my feet hurt. Okay, then at the end of the commercial, the camera pans away, and then you see the full screenshot, and this guy has been dribbling two basketballs, but he's been doing it in a wheelchair, and he doesn't have any feelings below his waist, so he can't feel that his feet hurt. So it really puts into perspective, you know, people whine and complain, and they, and they make all these excuses, and then you see someone like that who uh who would seem to have so much less physically but is doing so much more so that's that's just a reminder that um excuses are really really bad and i really think that it's just something to be aware of like the more excuses that people make it's almost like an inverse relationship it's like the the excuse happiness ratio it's like the more excuses a person makes uh, the more unhappy people seem to be. I don't know. I don't have any like hard evidence on this. It's all anecdotal evidence. But it just seems like the more excuses you make, you tend to blame other people for things. And like just things in general are out of your control because other people are doing things to you or other people are the reason things are happening. So so these excuses tend to lead to blaming others and, and you start pointing the finger at everybody else and everything else besides you. And as soon as you don't think you have control, as soon as you think your choices don't matter, that's when bad things really start to happen. And that can really affect your life and your happiness and your goals. So just just try your best. I mean, I know we're all human. I know we like to blame others. We like to... Uh, avoid accountability but try 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 your best to just accept responsibility and minimize the excuses as much as you can Uh, if you notice all the great athletes uh, when they lose football games or when there's a mistake made uh, when they can easily blame others the true champions just take responsibility said yep you know that that was on me I could have done better and uh, if you can kind of emulate that sort of attitude in your life, I think it'll it'll serve you very well. Okay, this next clip is re- a real quick clip on, uh, this is kind of a warm-up clip. This is a clip from a book called 
The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And a couple things to note about this. First off, it's just a phenomenal book. You guys all need to go out and buy it and read it and listen to it on Audible and all that good stuff. But it's written by a guy, Darren Hardy, who is actually the mentor of Jeff Olson. Now, Jeff Olson wrote The Slight Edge, okay? So here's a book written by a guy that mentored the guy that wrote The Slight Edge. Hopefully, you guys have listened to episode three. You love The Slight Edge. It's We talk about it a lot here. Um, and I read The Slight Edge, and then I found out about this book, and I'm like, ah, you know... I've already listened to the slide edge. I really don't need to listen to the compound effect. It's pretty much the same concept, but then for whatever reason, I'm like, ah, you know, might as well give it a try. And it <laughs> it's amazing. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's like slide edge on steroids. It's there's so many good things in that book, and there's so many like wife and husband hacks to increase uh, the satisfaction in your relationship from top to bottom. I mean, that alone is is worth worth the book. But this particular clip ties into exercise. And the, the concept goes back a little bit to just sort of knowing yourself and, and how you are. I mean, some people like to put a toe in the water and then a foot and then the water up to the knees. And some people just like to dive headfirst in you know, I just want to emphasize that you have to be a student of yourself and know how things, uh, how you react. And uh, me personally, I sort of like to build up to things. You know, when I first started exercising, it was once a week for a while and twice a week. And then, um, you know, I, I built up to three, three times a week and then some weightlifting, some cardio and, and all that good stuff. So, so this is an interesting story, and the the main reason I'm playing it is it it's going to start to touch on our next episode, episode ten, which will be uh, productivity and planning. And part of the cool stuff about exercise is if you if you make a plan, things get a whole lot easier. And and I'll tell a little bit more about what I'm what I mean after you listen to that clip. So here it is: the rhythms of life. When people get started in any new endeavor, they almost always overdo it. Of course, I want you to feel excited about setting up a rhythm for success, but you need to find a program that you can absolutely positively do in the long term without renegotiation. I don't want you thinking of the rhythms you can do for this week, month, or even the next 90 days. I want you to think about what you can do for the rest of your life. The compound effect, the positive results you want to experience in your life will be the result of smart choices and actions repeated consistently over time. You win when you take the right steps day in and day out, but you set yourself up for failure by doing too much too soon. A friend to the success team, who will remain unnamed to protect the guilty, decided after seeing a picture I'd posted of him on Twitter that he was going to get in shape. This was a massive shift of lifestyle for him. On the job, he sits for at least a dozen hours a day, and he hates to exercise. Previously, he explained that he would find ways of avoiding using certain dishes or accessing files if it required him to squat and bend down to get them. That's how much of an aversion he had to physical activity. Still, he made a resolution to get in shape. He joined a gym, hired a personal trainer, and began working out two hours a day five days a week. 
Richard, let's call him. I said, that's a mistake. You will not be able to maintain that commitment and will eventually stop doing it. You're setting yourself up for failure. He pushed back, assuring me that he changed forever. Even his trainer had recommended the intense push. I'm committed, he said. I want to be able to see my abs. Richard, what's your real goal? I asked him. I knew that he wasn't gunning to be on the cover of Men's Fitness. I want to be trim. I want to be healthy, he told me. Why? I asked. I want vitality. I want to be here long enough to see my kids have kids, he replied. These were his real, meaningful motivations. Richard wanted to be in it for the long haul. That meant he was signing on not for bikini season, but for a long-term commitment to fitness. Okay, I said. You've convinced me, but you're overdoing it. You're going to get two or three months down the road, and you're going to say, I don't have two hours to work out, so I guess I can't do it today. That's going to happen to you over and over again. Working out five days a week will turn into two or three, then you'll get discouraged. Soon it will be over. I know you're really fired up right now, so let's do this. Do your two hours a day, five days a week for now. It takes a lot of steam to get the wheels to budge from inertia, remember? But don't do it any longer than 60 or 90 days. Then I want you to scale it down to an hour or an hour and 15. You can still do your five days a week if you have to, but I would probably encourage you to go to four. Do that another 60 to 90 days. Then I want you to consider an hour a day for a minimum of three days a week. Four if you're feeling extra spry. That's the program I want you to work towards because if you don't get into something you can maintain... You won't do it at all. I really had to struggle to get Richard to comprehend this because at the moment, he was all gung-ho. He thought he was going to be able to stick with this new routine for a lifetime. For someone who's never worked out, to start working out two hours a day, five days a week is a surefire dead end. You have to build a program that you can do for 50 years, not five weeks or five months. It's okay if you go strong for a while, but you've got to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel so that you can start scaling back. You can always find 45 minutes to an hour a few times a week, but to find two hours, five days a week to make your routine work, that'll never happen. Remember, consistency, that's the critical component of success. So hopefully that clip will serve as either a warning or just give you some insight as you start uh, your exercise program. I mean, what's the point of working out five, six days a week for two months and then you're done forever? I really, really like the concept of picking an exercise program that you think you can stick with for the next 50 years. Now, I know I talk about life balance a lot, but I'm actually a really, really big fan of temporarily getting way, way out of balance. So if you have a particular problem area in your life, whether it's a relationship or your finances or your health, you dedicate a, a large amount of time for one month, two months, three months, wh whatever it takes to solve that issue, a lot of your time and energy can go into solving that issue. So if you're really in debt, obviously money is where you want to spend that time and iron out that trouble spot. Um, if you're really, really overweight and it threatens your life, you know, you're going to want to spend more time on your health until you get up and running and then you can sort of go into a, like a more of a maintenance program. 
But just knowing that you're not going to have to work out six days a week for the rest of your life, if you know that's only going to be a short-term thing, for the next three months, I'm going to kickstart my program, and then after that, I'm going to drop down to two or three days a week. I mean, just knowing that, what your plan is, uh, I think will will go a long way to making this a lifestyle change and not just some fad that you're going to do for a really short amount of time. Okay, this clip I think you're really going to enjoy. It is from the Ben Greenfield podcast. Uh, Not surprising given we're talking about fitness hacks today. Uh, I've mentioned Ben Greenfield in the past when I was talking about me uh, training for a marathon. But this is the first time I've actually played a clip from his show. So I feel a bit of indebtedness to Ben Greenfield because uh, after my brother turned me on to this show, uh, really encouraged me to start my own training, kind of step up my game in the physical fitness department. And it's one of the very first places I ever heard the term hack. Uh, Ben Greenfield a lot of times talks about biohacking and that's really just a physical fitness hack. But this episode is... It is an interview with Bryant Johnson, who is a philosopher and a CEO, and it's a really, really interesting interview. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in this clip. Since you guys have listened to Hackstack episode one through eight, there's going to be a lot of things that you hear in this interview that you've heard before. You're going to hear a lot of stuff on morning routines and evening routines and life balance and how all this stuff ties together and how <laughs> how important philosophy is as well and again i i got to keep hammering this point home when you start to hear these things over and over and over again you just you just got to take note it's it's not a coincidence that that all these things keep coming up and there's a point in this interview where where Ben Greenfield asks him he just says okay tell me about your morning routine now you'll you'll notice that it, he doesn't ask if he has a morning routine. He's like, tell me about it. Because this guy, um, super high achiever. I mean, he, he's doing things that, that you and I would probably have trouble doing in a lifetime. And this guy's doing, you know, when he was you know, 25, he's raising millions of dollars. He's creating businesses. He's selling businesses. He's, he's doing all these high-level financial things. And again, the question is, okay, so what's your routine? what are you doing in the morning it's 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 not if it's what so that's just something that you will uh, you'll start to see time and time again and there's also a really really quick subtle uh, reference to the 80/20 rule uh, which is basically just trying to maximize and be efficient as possible but we're going to talk a little bit more about that later and in particular uh, next episode so just keep a keep an ear peeled for that little reference. Okay, the main thing I want you to get from this clip is just to be a fly on the wall and just soak up as much information as you can. Don't worry if if you hear some terminology that doesn't make sense or it's jargony or it's over your head. I just want you to start to become familiar with some of these things. And just like last episode when we talked about goals, there's a whole bunch of different takes on fitness and just listening to people talk about goals. You get your own ideas and certain things stick and certain things don't. Uh, but if you don't listen to it, you you can't pick and choose from those ideas. So again, 
listen to this, start to acclimate yourself to some of the, uh, the way people speak on this subject. And again, once you start to listen to some of this stuff, your confidence will grow in the area of fitness. So this is your warm-up session for fitness hacks. So let's roll this clip. Hey folks, it's Ben Greenfield here, and my guest today is Brian Johnson. He has this pretty incredible story. He's actually not only recorded all of these philosophers' notes, which I kind of thought was was the only thing that he did, but he's actually um, got got a lot going on from a business standpoint. He's had an incredible journey of kind of combining fitness and health and happiness and business success into a really cool package. And he also has some some interesting characteristics, like he never sends email, like ever. He just doesn't use email, and I'm I'm sure he'll give us his tip for how to do that because I'm sure many <laughs> of you would love to know how to never send emails again. Um, he pretty much never says anything negative ever. I'm not quite sure how he pulls that off, but since I've known him, <laughs> I've never heard like one negative thing come out of his mouth. And he's just this unique combination of, of like a, a self-quantification biohacker kind of guy and a philosopher and a CEO and a, a family man. I'll put a picture of him and his family up in the show notes for you if you want to go check him out over at bengreenfieldfitness.com. Uh, but today, Brian's going to share with us his story and some of his biggest keys, some of his biggest wins to achieving that ultimate combination of fitness and health and happiness and business success. So, Brian, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started doing what you're doing? Because I know initially you were in law school, but you you uh, didn't stick with that for long. Yeah. So, you know, the last 15 years uh, since I dropped out of law school about 15 years ago, I basically spent half of it building businesses and half of it in philosopher mode, reading, writing, thinking. So I've built and sold two businesses. After dropping out of law school, the only thing I knew I wanted to do was to work with kids to coach a Little League baseball team. And I did that. It led to a business idea, raised, won a business plan competition at, at UCLA's Anderson School, raised five million bucks as a 25-year-old entrepreneur, hired the CEO of Adidas to replace me and just kind of, I call it my $5 million MBA, learned a ton, created something pretty cool, um, and then sold that and then took a few years off to kind of figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. I and and by the way, that business that you sold, that was to, uh, to, to the active network. Yeah. Right? Which is, which, which is relevant for this discussion. Yeah. So we sold it to the active network, uh, which obviously registration for triathlons and yeah, our I just, business. I just registered for a Spartan yesterday on the, on the active network. So, right on. So, yeah. so they bought us because we were the team sport market. So we helped the little league baseball teams, AOSO soccer teams, uh, you know, and they, we plugged in the registration so that when you're signing your kid up to play sports, you're doing it through e-teams, which was my company through active. So yeah, that's perfect. Um, to make that connection. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, spent a few years just reading and writing and thinking, uh, ran out of money and uh, also wanted to create, create again. <laughs> and uh, so created my second business. And that was basically at the time MySpace was big. Facebook mm -hmm. wasn't around yet. Mm -hmm. MySpace for people who want to change the world, raised a few million for that. Uh, CEO of Whole Foods invested, some great investors, sold that to Gaim. And oh, then spent the, uh, the, the, the yoga. Uh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yoga TV is what that is, right? Or something exactly. along those lines. They have Gaia TV. Yeah, and they do a ton of stuff in kind of the conscious space and uh, NASDAQ business, I think, whatever they are. And, and then I spent basically four years you know, reading and writing. I gave myself a PhD in how to live. And those philosopher's notes were my master's project. Two years, distilled a hundred of my favorite books. Um, and then I spent a few years tinkering with our business in Theos. 
And really over the last three, four months, it's just all come together and just really excited to lean into it. And, um, you know, our, our vision is let's create one of the coolest, most virtues-based, impactful, and profitable businesses in the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now, yeah. Uh, if we could back up for just a second to this whole idea of the the philosopher's notes, because like I mentioned, you know, that was that was how I first kind of like heard your voice and inside my MP3 player was listening to you talk about, you know, Marcus Aurelius and Jesus and, and all these philosophers. What what was the impetus there? I mean, did you just read all these books and decide you were going to record the audios for them or, or what got you interested in that? Yeah. What a great question. Yeah. So I was running my last business, uh, Zod's, and I was reading Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. I was reading Four Hour Work Week, this sort of thing. And I got to a point where I realized that business wasn't it. It was really great for a few years and it just wasn't it. And I decided to sell it within 30 days, had the deal done with, with Guyam, Money in the Bank done. And I, just, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to study life and really immerse myself in, in wisdom and philosophy. And then I decided to give myself a PhD. I couldn't find a program that integrated what I wanted. It wasn't positive psychology. It wasn't religious studies. It wasn't an MBA. It, it was all of those things. And there wasn't a program that did that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I was kind of banging my head against the wall. Well, what's it going to look like? How do I, I wanted to build a business. I wanted to prove that you can get paid to do what you love to do. You know, and I wanted to get paid to read and to study and to optimize my life. Long story short, I was on a flight home. We took a trip to Tokyo. I was flying home. I opened up the Sky Mall to a company called Soundview that did summaries for business executives. I had one of those choir of angels moments. You know, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to distill a hundred great optimal living books, and I'll mm-hmm. do exactly what they're doing. You know, six page summaries, twenty minute MP3s. I'll do all the, all the recording and all that stuff. Um, and that was, that was the basic kind of, uh, process. And mm-hmm. then that little moment, and then just, you know, moved to Bali for a year, spent a year in Bali, just reading and creating these and had a lot of fun and, and learned a ton. And, um, we got to meet through it. So there you go. <laughs> cool. Cool. I like it. So from that point, you, you had sold the Gaim business and started into this Entheos thing. And, you know, for people who don't really know what Entheos is, can you help us kind of wrap our heads around what that is and, and, and what you're accomplishing with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, sold Zods to Gaim, spent basically four years as a philosopher, philosopher's notes, wrote a little book, that kind of thing. And then the last three years been kind of tinkering with Entheos and playing with a bunch of different things. And it's really come together over the last really a couple of years, but it last uh, several months. And we do three primary things. So we produce conferences. Excited to be working with you later this year um, with extraordinary teachers. We just had one on meditation. 24,000 people attended it with the world's luminaries on meditation. So we do conferences. We'll reach hundreds of thousands of people via that. Um, And then uh, we do basically like a Facebook for optimal living. So we just launched our beta a few months ago. 1,000 people joined on day one, almost 10,000 people there now. And we're really excited to lean into it. And just imagine, you know, there's Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram. They're all great. But wouldn't it be cool if there's a social site that was all about this conversation? And that's what we're creating. And that's my real entrepreneurial background. So I, well, I, I don't get it. What can you explain a little bit more about what you mean when you say like a Facebook for for optimal living? Like, is this some is this like a social network? Yeah, it's a social network. I mean, that's what I've done. So I've built and sold two social networks. I built okay. the leading social network for teams involved in sports, and then I built the leading social network for people who want to change the world. So, so, so how would somebody actually use something like a social network for optimal living? Is it one of those deals where they go in and create a profile and just yeah. Like, 
yeah. I mean, like, how is it? How how would it be different than just like having your own Facebook account, for example? Yeah. Well, it's exactly like having your own Facebook account. Only imagine none of the negative stuff, none of the news, and people who actually care about your last workout and your last meditation, <laughs> and what you ate yesterday. You know, and and so it's it will be a way for you. Facebook is really great for connecting to people you know. You know, your your brother, your sister, your your aunt who lives three hours away and your grandma who's a couple hours away. It's fantastic in that sense. So when I posted my heart rate variability data just this morning on Facebook, your social network would be a place where something like that might be more well-received or, or understood about it, just jacked up about it. You <laughs> uh -huh. know? And, then, and then the other thing is, is that your fans, there's literally no way for your fans to meet one another. Mm. Not, there's no way. It's not how Facebook is architected. Unless someone comments on a post and you can click to their profile. And our whole thing is, look, if I'm following your podcast, your listeners right now have more in common with one another than with most people in their lives. And we want to connect them to one another. Mm. And that's what we think is transformative. And I have goosebumps as I say that because it's, it's application only. You have to apply to join. And almost 10,000 people have already applied. We haven't done anything marketing-wise. Mm. And they all say the same thing. I'm tired of Facebook. It's awesome in so many ways, but I want something positive. I want to really engage in something that matters with people who are passionate about life and want to make a difference in the world. Yeah. So that's the idea. We'll have millions of people on that in the next few years and, and super excited. And then the third thing we do, so conferences, social, we call it the Oasis. And then uh, we do the Academy. So we think it's weird that you go from math to science to history, but you're never taught how to live. And so we're creating the Netflix kind of the Udemy for that all about optimal living, working with guys like you and women like Sarah Gottfried for health, fitness, nutrition, and then positive psychology, relationships, parenting, conscious business, all the stuff you wish you were taught in a really cool format. Um, that's our Academy for Optimal Living. So that's a quick look at the few primary things that we do. Yeah, cool. I love it. And, and I know for, for those of you who are uh, podcast devotees and, and listen to my episodes, I think I have mentioned before that I'm creating kind of like an online series of about 30 different courses with different experts. And that's actually going to be one of the one of the Entheos courses later on this year. So yeah. um, you will, of course, uh, be the first to know about that when it when it comes out. <laughs> um, but Brian, let's delve into into some of your big wins. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that you're obviously into is is health and and optimizing your health and have you always been that way or was there something that happened in your life that got you more interested in that yeah another great question um i haven't always been like that uh as an entrepreneur building my first business at 24 25 26 raised five million bucks you know i called the learning curve it was like rock climbing you know went from two employees me and my co-founder in our pajamas in the living room you know crushing it to 45 employees in nine months and, you know, it's tough and I didn't work out. I ate like crap and I felt like crap. And, uh, I didn't even know what the series of events were, but I was kind of always into this stuff, but I was just so busy. It didn't come in and I just, um, it just wasn't working, you know? And so over the last 15 years, I've been kind of dialing it in. After I sold that business, I actually became a trainer just because I wanted to learn this stuff. You and mean like a, like a personal trainer? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. no intention to actually train anyone, but just figured that'd be a good way to start, you know, getting some mastery in the domain, knowing that if I wanted to reach my potential, I, I got to dial in my energy. Mm -hmm. And, um, so got into that and then just realized that, you know, I mean, it's scientifically just established. I know you know this and all of your, your listeners know this, but you know, 
not exercising is like taking a depressant. Like it's just, we're biologically developed to move. And so it's become a fundamental part of my life. And I used to be super up and down, you know, like super passionate and then super down and Mm -hmm. stressed and overwhelmed. And exercise is my number one thing, Mm non-negotiable, won't do it. And then you dialed me in because I was just rowing a ton. Like I rode a million meters two years ago and show up and log my 5k and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But so I was, I was doing fine, but you know what you put me on with the high intensity interval training, some really great strength training, um, and then the nutrition that went with it just literally took me to a, a whole nother level. Um, that's just been awesome. So, what about the nutrition side of things? Is that something that you've always been dialed into? Well, I've always been experimenting on, and again, uh, that's been been transforming quite a bit. I was vegan for seven, eight, nine years, or something like that, and you know, for a lot of kind of compassion reasons and also believe that that was, you know, a good nutrition approach. And then I felt fine, you know, but I get migraines once in a while and, and my wife had some skin issues and you just, you know, we were, we were open to experimenting as we were having our baby whose name is Emerson. And Emerson says, all life is an experiment. The more, the better. Hmm. We're like, you know what? Like, let's, let's just try it out. You know, we read, it starts with food and a couple other books and some people on our team were really into it. We're like, let's just do it and went basically paleo and, you know, super clean. Um, and it was huge. My energy levels just, just transformed. Uh, it just felt so much better. And then the work you and I did six months ago, whenever we started of, you know, looking at the blood panel and really quantifying this and just dialing in it even further, um, has been awesome. Mm. So, you know, that's where I'm at now. So let's, let's go into a day in the life of Brian which threatens to sound like a, a Family Guy episode, but uh, <laughs> I think that is a Family Guy episode, Day in the Life of Brian. Yeah. Um, but in the life of Brian Johnson, um, I, I'm, I'm curious not only about kind of how you structure your day from a business standpoint of, for example, not checking email and kind of how you manage your team. Because I know a lot of people listening to our podcast who are entrepreneurs who are into business, but then also you know, kind of like how you're eating, how you're mm-hmm. exercising, what a typical day is looking like for you. Yeah. Again, really fun question. So my days start in nearly the identical way every single day. And we have a 19-month-old, so there's a little variance. You know, I check in for dad duty uh, in the mornings, and depending on when he gets up, some things may move around uh, in terms of timing. But sequence-wise, they all get done every morning. So I wake up. I tend to wake up early, 5, 5.30, go to bed super early, block, you know, whatever you call those things, you know, no blue light glasses mm-hmm. at night. We're just a dorky family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, so get up early. And the first thing I do is meditate. I meditate for 20 minutes every single morning in the last five years. I've missed one day, which was really funny. Whole another conversation. Uh, do but- you, and, and this is something I'm, I'm curious about because uh, you hear a lot of people talk about meditation, frankly, like, yeah. and a lot of people say, I get up in the morning and I meditate. What do you do? Do you do it while you're lying there in bed before you get out of bed? Do you go outside? Do you have a special room that you go into or what do you do? Yeah. Well, two things on that. One, I taught a class on this, which is the very first class I taught at the academy because I think Mm. most people go super out there and it's just, you know, whatever, or it is what it is. But I wanted to teach it based on science and based on just practical common sense stuff. So I taught a class called How to Meditate Without Moving to the Himalayas. And we'll hook you up with the links so you guys can get it for free. And it's just it's it's okay. kind of my approach of why I do it and how I do it. And but the short answer is I don't do it in bed. I'd fall back asleep, you know. I get out and I I literally just, you know, have a spot in my office and 
I sit in what's called hero's posture, which I like for more than one reason, you know, kind of gets me there and, and, um, which is basically my butt on my heels. When I first started, I had about a hundred cushions, you know, to make it work. Uh, now I can basically, I, whatever little pillow thing. And then, um, I sit in what's called strong determination, which means you don't open your hands, you don't open your eyes and you don't open your legs. You don't move because your physical discomfort is actually your mind. You know, mm-hmm. like if you just let it be there, it would go away in 20 seconds or 30 seconds. So that's a big practice. And then I do mantra work. I do following my breath. I do different things um, depending on what I'm what I'm feeling. But I do it. I do it every day. Mm-hmm. And that's my that and exercise and nutrition are my top three kind of hacks. You but know, that, just, that meditation is right when you get up in the morning. Right when I get up. It's the most important thing. And then and what, just what happens next after that? So then I do five minutes. You got me into this. You you wanted me to do 10 minutes of yoga. I got five. Uh, you know, I do a derivation of the video you sent me. Um, you know, I make sure I do at least one sun salutation in the morning, just as out of principle. Haven't missed that since you and I started working together. Mm-hmm. And um, basic opening series, you know, just get mm-hmm. the body open. Um, nothing fancy. I mean, five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then I immediately go and I actually read a philosopher's note. I started doing that at the beginning of the year, haven't missed a day. I'm on like 140 out of so 100. So you have, you have those things, not just as MP3s, but condensed into PDFs too, right? Yeah. So I have them all printed out and I, you know, I wrote them five, four, three years ago. So I read them and it's like, damn, like this is like reading it for the first time. It, it's just, it's, you know, Marcus Aurelius, like you said, and Emerson and mm-hmm. positive psychology. So I read one of those a day. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, actually I do, I do the, uh, five minute journal thing, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, uh, so that's I do fantastic. that. It's really cool. Our whole I, team. I bought do that a, every morning and, so well, I, and evening, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts. Mm-hmm. I mean, we bought that for our team and for some of our partners and just, we love it. Um, and then I journal, I journal every single morning and mm-hmm. I journal basically the exact same thing every single morning on, mm-hmm. I use a sketchbook on the left-hand side. I put my virtues. Mm-hmm. So as you know, I'm all about virtue and, and, you know, classic Greek ideal of arete, which we can talk about and just what's important to me and um, who I'm going to be in life. And just, I literally write that every single morning on the left-hand side. And then on the right, I journal about our business and mm-hmm. what our business is committed to being, what our big vision is over the next five, 25 years, and then what our kind of micro goals are this year. And then what is most important right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I literally do that every single morning. I can't remember the last time I missed a day and I snap a picture of it and I send it to our COO who does the exact same thing. And did, did you did you start into a practice like that? And would you say before you became successful or after you became successful? I'd say yes, and I'd say that mm-hmm. I've I've started doing it casually when I really needed to do it back in the day, fifteen years ago. You know, mm-hmm. and I really needed to come up with good ideas. I wouldn't go to the office and I'd, I'd journal. You know, mm-hmm. unconsciously, I was I didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah, and. Since I've learned the power of consistency on fundamentals, and that's the hallmark of greatness, I've mm-hmm. just decided, well, what are the things that, that, that keep me in the game, that mm-hmm. keep me plugged in? And I'm 100%. I just, I'm, I'm absolutely committed, non-negotiable. I do these things. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and journaling has become that. And it's been that for probably, I don't know, five, six years. And, yeah. and it's an accelerant. Yeah. You know, I just groove it. The reason I ask that is, is so many people. I, I get this from a lot of people. They hear about my morning routine, and and it's you know it's it's similar to yours. I wake up, I journal, and while I'm journaling, I take my my heart rate variability, and then I get out of bed and I do about ten minutes of yoga, and then I go and take my cold shower, 
And the feedback that I get over and over again from people is, that sounds exhausting. How do you find all the time to do that? And it's it's one of those things where you know you make these these little morning practices a part of your life, and it's not exhausting. And what I find, I don't know about you, Brian, but what I find is that when you start off your day slow and with purpose like that, it creates almost like this affluence of time. Yep. Later, this this mentality of having an affluence of time that sticks with you the rest of the day. And you don't feel rushed or stressed. It's yeah. it's a it's a totally different feeling. And and I think that it would seem to me that most of the people who say that that seems exhausting or time consuming are the people who most need that affluence of time. I think you can remove the qualifier. With all respect to people who say that, if you if you are saying that, you need twice as much of it. Period. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what all the great teachers say. I mean, that's just a. And then maybe not experiment with it. You, your life might be working just optimally, and there's no room for optimization. Fantastic. But all of us have room to optimize. And yeah. from what I've learned in both my studies and my, my experimenting is it's huge. And it, it does exactly what you described. Yeah. Uh, and we pay our team. We pay our team an hour a day. The first hour wow. of their day is on us to do these things. Every single person in our team meditates. They wow. journal. That's they so cool. exercise. And there's absolutely no drama. Our yeah. team is so high functioning, so high energy, so awesome to be around. Um, and we invest where we think it matters, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm with you. And, uh, and the other thing I do is I, I do one of those, um, what are they called? Tea and chi mm-hmm. that you recommended. I yeah, drop one on of that. the, I'm on, the uh, Chinese adaptogenic herb. You got complexes. me on the monthly deal with them and, and you know, I, I rip open, I've got that ready. It's sitting there, my big old, you know, 20 ounce or 25 ounce of water yep. mason jar ready to dump that thing into it. And I have that while I'm journaling. Awesome. Awesome. That it's, it's funny that you should mention that because this is probably the first day in, in months where I haven't had a tea and chi in the morning. And it's because I actually, I broke one of my own rules this morning and I scheduled a phone call in the morning. I, <laughs> I, I try and avoid any business at all in the morning. And it was one of those phone calls back East where it was the only time they could schedule it into. And so I started off my day day after I'd finished my, my yoga and my cold shower, it was literally, I stepped out <laughs> while I was still wearing my towel to get on this phone call and throw off my whole morning and I haven't had my tea and chi, but uh, we're going to make it through this interview either way. That's we're, fantastic. We're do this. I'll, I'll hang on uh, for dear life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> without my drugs. So, awesome. um, so you got your tea and chi and then, um, what, what's your, what's the rest of your morning routine look like from a, from kind of like a yeah. breakfast to a business standpoint? Yeah, well, then it's family. You know, for me, it's I'm on dad duty. Uh, my wife has taken over night duty, and we, you know, our little guy got up a ton, and she's just been a stud. So, you know, I'm I'm first guy, first person he sees in the morning, and we've got our little deal. You know, and he gets up between seven and eight, so I've got that period of time, and I'll do a little work after I do that stuff. You know, I'll go in and check out our oasis and how the business is doing, and respond to some emails and stuff like that. Um, or whatever else has come up and then it's dad duty. So, you know, I love starting my day, you know, reading some books with him and changing his diaper and bringing him to his mommy. And, you know, we'd spend a little bit of time together and, um, and then I hit it, you know, whether it's eight or nine, uh, and I don't schedule calls before nine. That's when my day uh, this morning I had one at seven, but Mm -hmm. that's, that's unusual. Um, and then, uh, you know, nine o'clock it's, it's, I'm on. And then one of the other things we do with our team, that I frankly don't do consciously all the time is we identify what's the most important task. Right. right now I'm raising money. So that's my most important task. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. And I'm just hitting that super hard. And um, So do you live by that philosophy of doing the hard thing first? Yeah. And then I, I, 
I stretch back a little bit. We're we we follow something called the domino strategy. So I love the physics of dominoes. So researchers say that you want to set a goal that's about fifty percent likely. It's a stretch, right? And so I was doing some research and I'm like, oh, you know, dominoes, like what's the next thing? We're all about straight line A to B. What's the next highest leverage thing? How do we 80, 20 and just crush it? And then I found this video by a physics professor on the physics of dominoes. And it's just awesome. And I can send you a link to this as well. But they've got 13 dominoes. The first one is literally the size of your fingernail. He, he needed to use like a tweezers to put it in place. The next one is 50% bigger and each one after it is 50% bigger. The 13th one is three feet tall, hundred pounds heavy. Mm. And this, this, this guy tells you that each domino can knock over a domino that's 50% bigger than it. And it's amazing. He starts this chain and boom, 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 boom. 13th domino falls easily. And he says, you extend it another whatever dominoes and you've got the empire state building. So for us, we're always ruthlessly focused on the next domino that we know we can crush and that we know that if we can hit that domino, the next one will fall easily and we just line them up. So that's how our team orients. We have very clear goals. We know precisely what we're up against and what we're going for this year, this quarter, this month, this week. And then what do we need to do today so that we can hit that goal? And it's, we, you know, we talk about high velocity. We kind of say we run our business like a two minute offense, you know, gotcha. just super aggressive, um, always offensive and always really focused on what matters. And, and, uh, so that's how we approach it. Now, at some point during the morning, uh, but, but after your yoga and before you kind of start business and in between kid time or whatever, are you doing breakfast? Or are you, are you yeah, a fasted yeah. morning guy or what's yeah. your routine look like? You know, I did your, um, we did our, what do you have me on the autoimmune protocol? And I did that like literally to the T didn't break it yeah. once for well, like we, six uh, months. Yeah. We wanted to, um, uh, hopefully I'm not breaking HIPAA no, regulations say by anything. saying this, you, but we wanted to shut down inflammation. You had some inflammation yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, we had you on the autoimmune. It's nuts. So you can say you have my explicit permission to say any and everything you ever want to say about our work together. <laughs> so my inflammation sucked. You know, and you had malaria and HIV. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. No. Jesus. Thank God we were able to get both of those. <laughs> Parasites were horrible. Oh, my God. Uh, still need to get that tested, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, my inflammation, you know, wasn't where we wanted it to be. And, and um, it was nuts. I mean, what you had me do, we got on the autoimmune. I did my, my ginger, golf ball of ginger. I did my bone broth, like to the, just impeccably. I followed directions very well. And we knocked it down. I don't even know where it went, but you yeah, know. You, you went below 0.2. Went to, went to rock bottom. Nuts. And, and there was no uh, there was no big gun supplements there. It was, it was honestly mostly ginger and bone broth. And I believe – were you doing curcumin as well? Yeah, the phenocan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the curcumin, yeah. the phenocan, yeah. And that, and that was it. And it was amazing as far as the inflammation was concerned. Um, yeah. and, and for you, after you kind of got off of, of doing kind of the paleo autoimmune thing after going through that protocol, which is, by the way, for those of you listening in, it's a wonderful protocol, but not it's a it's a phase. It's a, it's a chapter, not something that you use for the, for your whole life per se, unless you have an autoimmune condition. But where did you go to from there? What's what's kind of a typical breakfast for you now? Yeah, so I used to do you know the salmon, greens, olives, avocado, basically every day. That's what I did when I was on it hardcore. And now I've actually I reset. I used to have terrible you know blood sugar issues, as you know, and my energy level would be weird, and I'd need to eat all the time when I was vegan, you know. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and now it's amazing where right? I never could skip meals without the risk of me literally getting a migraine mm -hmm. back in the day, years ago, mm -hmm. even two years ago. And 
then it just became literally bulletproof where I actually, this morning I, I started off, I'm doing kind of the, we do fat tea. I do longevity tea with a huge mm-hmm. scoop of ghee and, and sometimes a little MCT, although mm-hmm. I pulled back on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel great. So really having that built in, um, I forget what you call it, but you know, fasting period. And, uh, and then want to make sure I ate a little bit this morning. So uh, wife cooked me up a little bacon and greens, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but then I'll usually do lunch, which is, you know, pretty straightforward, the protein and, and ton of greens and ton of fat. Uh, um, and then you've got me also, you know, checking how much fruit I'm eating and do a lot of blueberries, not a lot of blueberries, but blueberries and cherimoyas were in season. So enjoying, you know, one of those a day kind of thing. Um, but super simple. And then yeah. another fat tea in the afternoon and, and, uh, you know, simple dinner, a little yeah. lighter than lunch and it just feels so good. Yeah. And for, for, by the way, for you vegan listeners listening in, you know, very, very common to have that inability to turn yourself into more of a fat burning machine because of the propensity for, for starches, uh, for grains and for some of the more simpler sugars and fruit based sugars when you're following a plant based diet. But I've actually seen, you know, some vegans be able to get themselves into pretty high levels of fat oxidation. And it takes things like, you know, nuts of all kinds and avocados and ground flax seeds and olive oil and, you know, even a lot of these EPA DHA sources for vegans like spirulina and chlorella, you know, and algae forms like, you know, I don't want vegans or vegetarians listening in to think that, um, you know, you're always going to have appetite fluctuations. But, you know, Brian kind of uh, alludes to a really good point is that it's it is uh, uh, important to be able to train your body to be able to oxidize fat. And frankly, it's important from a productivity standpoint too to just be able to, to work and not have to worry about taking breaks for snacks. Yeah, my mind is just, you know, in the afternoons, it would get a little, you know, uh, less grounded. And it's just, it's just solid. You know, and now I know, like, I don't go to to fruit or something. I go to a fat tea and it's just yeah. bam. I'm just, yeah. I just walked in and feel so, so good. So your fat tea, you're using ghee in that. And what, are you using a green tea or a black or a white or what's your tea I do, source? So I do something called longevity tea. I think it's dragon herbs, which I love. Um, and I'll do one or two of those a day. And then, you know, just an herbal tea. I don't do any caffeine. Okay. Uh, I got enough energy that I just maybe I'll experiment with that at some point, but you know, uh, I like to keep it right where I like it, you know, and it's nice and even without any caffeine, but, um, mostly the longevity tea and then, uh, some herbal, uh, even chamomile in the afternoon kind of thing. Yeah. I see that longevity tea. It's, it's here on Amazon. I'll, I'll throw a link for folks in the show notes. You can, you can check this out and it's, uh, is it all caffeine free? That longevity tea? It's got some different adaptogens in it, but, Mm -hmm. but, uh, my understanding is it's caffeine free. Yeah. Cool. I like it. Um, so from an exercise standpoint, you're, you're obviously doing the meditation and a little bit of yoga in the mornings, but when do you do your, your harder stuff when it comes to exercise? Yeah, so I'll do my workout after our chat. Um, today's I'm just still following your plan. Uh, literally, you know, you had me on three strength, two hits. Uh, I'm now doing three, four, five of those a week. Kind of fluctuates. So but making give, sure uh, I, li- listeners who haven't had the 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 pleasure of experiencing one of my hit workouts or or yep. one of my harder workouts, can you kind of kind of go through a sample workout like what you'll do today or what you did yeah. yesterday? Yeah, freaking awesome is how I'd start by saying it. So you you hooked me up too. You know, we've got a rowing machine, a little gym at home and a little rowing machine, box jump and stuff like that. So you you hooked us up with something specific to our thing. So I love to row. So my HIIT workout rested yesterday, day before, was uh, I did the 
five minute warm up on the row. And then I did interval 20 on 10, 20 seconds on 10 seconds off eight cycles. And then a five cool, you know, kind of keep it going rest and then hit that again for, for another eight cycles and then five minute cool down. I think it's mm. a 23 minute workout. It's perfect. I mean, it's nuts. I can be just on fire in the morning and start feeling myself getting a little up, you know, yep. and, um, just go hit that and I'm just boom, done. Uh, so I usually do that around now. You know, uh, we're, we're talking right now, you know, 10 something and between 10 and noon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, for those of you listening in who might be a you know a triathlete or a marathon or, or, or someone of that nature, um, you know, Brian's goal here is to, well, it's basically to, to maintain lean muscle, to, um, to burn fat and to have a, a enough fitness to feel really, really good cardiovascularly. And from an energy standpoint, you know, and, and if you're a busy person listening in, you can do those type of workouts, mm-hmm. those 20 to 30 minutes, you know, high intensity type of workouts that I have Brian doing. And then if you want to go out and do a marathon or a triathlon or something like that, you just pick one weekend day and you use that for like a stamina day. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think a lot of people are under the impression that, oh, you can't just work out 20 minutes a day. You got to do an, you know, an hour long lunchtime run or you know, a morning bike ride and an evening swim. But frankly, high intensity interval training is, you know, something I personally incorporate quite a bit. I do it at the end of my day, not in the middle of my work day. And then, you know, you, you throw in one stamina effort on the weekend and you know, you can you can really go out and do quite a bit with that type of routine if you're a busy person who doesn't have time yep. to do the longer stuff. Yep. Yeah, and we had the eighty twenty. You know, I wanted mm-hmm. you to get me where I wanted to be. And then data wise too, you I didn't do the the specific way we didn't have a scale or body fat but my hunch is i was probably we wanted to put on 10 pounds of lean muscle and i didn't have the precise measure but i guess i was probably 18 20 percent body fat at 160 158 at six feet tall six little over that in 170 10 percent so you probably put on and i had you check my math here 25 pounds of muscle and i feel like you did it all i did was do what you told me to do you know i'm like damn that's amazing but loss you know whatever that was in fat, uh, 15 pounds of fat and put on 25 pounds of muscle. And it was nuts just doing what, uh, you asked me to do. So just deep appreciation for you. And my wife had her similar gains in, in the work you did with her. So I just want to yeah, make well, that thanks. clear thanks. how much we appreciate you. I appreciate that. Uh, so obviously the day does not end with, with dinner and having checked off your workout and business. You've got, of course, evening routines. You talked yeah. about how you journal, I think, or, or do the, yep. do the five minute journal in the evening. But what else does your evening routine consist of? What are some of the big wins for you for your nighttime routine? Simplicity. So we're super boring. We we have a 19 month old, and one of our practices is is called boring sameness. So we really wanted to give him a context in which he can flourish, where he just has boring sameness. You know, we don't we don't go out a ton. You know, he's we take him. He sleeps when he needs to sleep, and we do the exact same thing every night. He's been alive for 19 months, which is however many days that is over 500 days. 490 of them, we've done exactly the same thing, uh, which is you know we we get ready, you know, have dinner, get ready, do a little playing. And we go for a walk, 15, mm-hmm. 20 minute walk, uh, come in, put him down. And then my wife and I, this is, you know, seven, seven is with the time change, et cetera. Um, we get, we get ready. So we don't turn on any lights. We play a game, you know, it's all whatever you call that blue light friendly lights. You know, we've got them around the house and we've got our little glasses on and, um, <laughs> You know, we're, we're getting ready for bed at eight, like nine's a late night for me. I, I hate to yep. be wrapping up by, by nine. I got five and a half hours of sleep. 
a few nights ago, which is the first time I've gotten less than seven mm-hmm. in a long time just because something came up and it's fine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I might, I love eight hours. I've got my yeah. little up band so I can track that and see what we're doing. And um, I'm just, just all about that. And we both are, which helps. And I, I take a shower. Yeah. I love taking a hot shower. That's kind of part of my mm-hmm. in the evening. Before. Yeah, just, yep. you know, that body temperature drop I find really helpful. I was testing the little bit of, of MCT and it's a tiny bit of honey a little bit um, just for stabilization, Asprey style. And I don't do that all the time, but if I didn't eat quite enough, you know, and I don't want to eat a full meal, I'll do that, um, yeah. Yeah. which feels good. So, yeah. What's been working for me with that, uh, that whole, uh, if I don't get a chance to eat a, a good big dinner before bed, and I know I'm going to wake up later on at night hungry. Um, for for a good mix of those medium chain triglycerides and uh, amino acids that actually taste good, what I'll do about an hour or so before bedtime is I'll just take a, a little bit of full fat coconut milk and mm. put that into a, a little bowl, and I add about two tablespoons of collagen, so you get mm. this nice amino acid release while you're asleep, <laughs> and then nice. I put about a teaspoon of dark chocolate powder in that. Nice. And uh, stir all that up, and then I put it into the freezer, and it's kind of like this bittersweet chocolate coconut ice cream. Uh-huh. Once you pull it back out before you go to bed, but that's something that I've been doing lately uh, for for that that nighttime snack if I need a nighttime snack. Uh, <laughs> and then speaking of the MCT, actually for the first time last night, based off of uh, an, an article that I read from Dave Asprey, and I've done this before with with other oils, but never with MCT, is I did uh, oil pulling. Huh. Or you, you have you done this before? You know, a bunch of people on our team are doing it. Tell me. Yeah, so oil pulling is this Ayurvedic practice of swishing oil in your mouth as an antiviral and antibacterial for for your gums and your mouth. And what you do is you just kind of work the oil through your teeth and around in your mouth for about ten minutes. And um, the idea is that it improves your oral health and can potentially help with things like you know breath, teeth whitening, things of that nature. And um, so yeah, did did that for about ten fifteen minutes last night while I was going about my bedtime routine. It was just, it was interesting, but there's there's a new use for MCT oil for our yeah. listeners. Who <laughs> would have known? That's fantastic. Yeah. I think traditionally in in uh, in, in an Ayurvedic practice, they'll use like sesame oil or ghee for something like that. But um, yeah, if you have some extra MCT oil lying around, there's that. Very cool. So, um, so another thing that I wanted to ask you was about uh, supplements. Like we talked about, you taking Chinese adaptogenic herbs and doing your your golf ball size of ginger every day. And uh, I'm I'm curious if you're doing anything else when it comes to supplementation, because we're all we're all nerds when it comes to biohacking over at Ben Greenfield Fitness, of course. Yeah, well, you got me on the ginger. You got me on the bone broth. We've constantly got bone broth in the freezer. We do it like once every week, 10 weeks. We actually put two chickens into a huge, uh, whatever you call that thing, crock pot and cook mm-hmm. it up. Yep. Um, I do the curcumin on your recommendation. You got me into, I might have been doing it with my wife, but you made sure I got into it. The krill oil. I do, uh, what's the other kind of, I do vitamin D, of course. What's krill oil, cod liver oil. Mm, I do that as yeah. well. And then, you know, now I do the ginger tea. So I do a little ginger lemon honey tea mm. several times a week. I just like it. And it's kind mm-hmm. of my my fun way to do it these days. And uh, I think that's what I do. I might nice. be missing something. Nice. Tea and cheese. Yeah. But uh, yeah. that's about it. Yeah, interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a good protocol. So you're getting your omega-3 fatty acids. You're getting your anti-inflammatories. You're getting some of those herbs. So it's a good 
good baseline protocol without too much complexity. Now, the other question I have for you, Brian, because there's so many different places we can go, but and so many things you've been involved with, but I want to I want to hit on this other thing, and and that is there's a there's a documentary on Joseph Campbell called Finding Joe, and I, apparently you were involved with that. I've heard wonderful things about that documentary, but I'm curious uh, what that's all about. Yeah, so a guy named Pat Solomon, just extraordinary human being. Um, he actually was a Philosopher's Notes guy, and I have three notes on Joseph Campbell, and he had been kicking around the idea of kind of modernizing the Bill uh, the, the um, Bill Moyers interviews on the power of myth and making it like cool in the 21st century. And I think you know my Philosopher's Notes helped catalyze that for him. He reached out to me as the first person he wanted to interview, thinking I was in Topanga, California. He was in Venice. I was actually in Bali at the time. Uh, long story short, he flew out to Bali and um, filmed me. I introduced him to some friends, and he just hustled and got a great group of people talking about the modern-day hero's journey. So bringing Joseph Campbell's wisdom to life, Tony Hawk, Laird Hamilton, um, the founder, the, the guy who runs the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and a bunch of great teachers. Um, so, yeah, I happen to be part of that, and um, – he just did a great job. I watch it. You know, I've watched it probably half a dozen times. And each time I get something out of it that just really catalyzes my life, my own hero's journey. So I, hmm. I'm sure if you're into to this and you're listening to this, you, you'd love the movie. Does somebody really? need to be a philosophy nerd to really well, – Not the, reason, the reason I ask is like I've never really been that into philosophy, honestly. I thought it was kind of one of the more boring classes that I took in college and – when I listened to your philosopher's notes, like that was the first time that this stuff would kind of like practically made sense yeah. to me. But I'm curious yeah. about this Finding Joe movie. Like if, if people are going to be able to get something out of it, if they're not just, you know, like totally enamored with, with philosophy. I'm with you. I hated my philosophy class. I got a B in my philosophy class at UCLA. I hated it. One of my least favorite classes because they went intellectual on it. And philosophy yeah. means love of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge of life. That's a, that's a life hacker. That's a biohacker is a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, not these pedantic ivory tower. Let's see if we can count the number of angels on a pinhead type of discussion. It's how do you live? You know, and part of what I want to do is rebrand the idea of what a philosopher is. So if you're into this stuff, you're doing Ironmans, you're, you're performing at the level that you're performing at. If you're this far into this interview, <laughs> uh, you, in my mind, are a philosopher. You're a lover of wisdom and optimizing your life, and you love the movie. You're also a hero. You're committed to living a truly extraordinary life. And that's what Joseph Campbell talked about. Every single movie that we love, Star Wars, George Lucas was – Joseph Campbell was one of George Lucas's mentors. He mm. based Star Wars on his work. Yeah. And all mythology is based on what he calls the hero's journey. Yeah. And so this movie is about that and about translating those ideas into our lives. So I think uh, I can't wait for you to see it. We're going to send you a copy. And um, if you're into living your hero's journey, living an extraordinary life, you're going to love the movie. There you go. Hopefully you got something out of that clip. Uh, I really like how Brian Johnson gave his definition of philosophy as simply being a lover of wisdom. And it's a great great way to define philosophy uh no reason to get all complicated uh but if you're if you're looking to optimize your life and just become as wise as possible um that's a really really good definition for philosophy couple other things to point out uh, i'm sure your radar was going off like oh yeah i've heard that before oh yeah that sounds like a familiar concept uh did you pick up on 
one of Brian Johnson's quote, um, what'd he say? The power of consistency on fundamental. That's the hallmark of greatness. Hmm. Sounds like the slide edge, huh? And then he also talked about his three top fitness hacks, uh, which were basically meditation, exercise, and nutrition. And I want to dig into those just a little bit. Okay, so the meditation, uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, we've mentioned that time and time again as part of uh, your Miracle Morning. Um, He even mentioned the five-minute journal, which we have mentioned before as well. Uh, the exercise thing is is something I want to dig into just a little bit more. You know, a lot of people have a, a perception about exercise that it just takes a ton of time. And, and hopefully you start to see that for for just a, a, a normal person that, you know, wants to lose a little bit of weight, gain a little bit of muscle, have a little bit more energy. It doesn't take all that much time. I think Brian Johnson mentioned that his his workout was like 23 minutes, and he basically is doing this with a, a HIT workout, H-I-I-T, high intensity interval training, which is basically a workout that uses fast explosive movements, uh, usually body weight movements, um, jumping jacks, jumping on boxes, uh, doing push-ups. Uh, another form of a HIT workout is Tabata which I believe is 20 seconds on followed by a 10 second rest interval. Uh, and you do that for anywhere from five to eight to 10 rounds, something like that. Um, and I'll post some of these on the show notes. There are a ton of even just 10 minute hit workouts. So this really puts to rest uh, any excuse of not having enough time. And then his final hack that he mentioned was nutrition. So his top three, meditation, number two, exercise, number three, nutrition. And that's where I want to focus on a little bit next. And we're going to play another clip here shortly. But if you talk to anyone about nutrition, and when I say anyone, I usually mean like if you talk to a personal trainer or a gym owner or anyone with a little bit of knowledge in the fitness industry, Uh, They'll tell you pretty much straight up that uh, if you're looking to change your body composition between fat and muscle, they will tell you that 80% of that goal is accomplished via your nutrition and your diet, and only about 20% is accomplished through uh, exercise. Now, I was kind of blown away when I heard first heard that ratio you know i thought it might have been the other way you know 80 percent exercise 20 percent nutrition or or 50 50 at best but every everyone i seem to talk to seems to think that it's 70 80 sometimes people will even say it's 90 percent what you eat and you know it's 10 15 20 percent uh, how you exercise uh, obviously for the best results you want to do everything you can but i do want to emphasize nutrition which is the discussion we're going to talk about right now So to further this discussion, we are going to talk about the paleo diet. Now, the paleo diet is supposedly you eat the kind of foods that a caveman would have eaten. And in case you don't know what a caveman sounds like, it sounds like this a little bit. (laughs) All right, that was... That was an old cartoon from my younger days. 
and you know i like to throw in little crazy sound effects like that so on this diet you can eat things like um vegetables and fish you can also eat chicken which actually reminds me of another obscure cartoon that i used to watch and it was called super chicken so like it or not you're going to listen to the theme song right now it's one of the best cartoons ever created when you find yourself in danger when you're threatened by a stranger when it looks like you will take a licking there is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you just call for super chicken but if you're afraid you'll have to overlook it besides you knew the job was dangerous when you took it he will drink his super sauce and throw the bad guys for a loss and he will bring them in alive and kicking there is one thing you should learn when there is no one else to turn to call for super chicken call for super chicken Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. They do not make cartoons like that anymore. And I know some of you are saying, thank God, but great, great cartoon. Okay, back to the paleo diet. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the paleo diet. Like, this is the way that you're supposed to eat, and you have to eat this way. Uh, Me me personally, I I guess I would be more considered a paleo-ish Um I'm more of a high-fat, low-carb diet. It seems to be that uh, the biggest culprit in in most of these diets is grains and bread and enriched flour and things like that. And not only do these things lead to weight gain, uh, excess carbs, but uh, there's a real, real like link to uh, mental illnesses and mental uh, ailments like uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and and things of that nature. And and the connection is actually pretty shocking. So I'm going to play this clip from the Rob Wolf Paleo Solution podcast. I'm going to play the whole entire podcast. And I think it's actually his most downloaded podcast so rob wolf he's got a pretty popular podcast uh but this is his most downloaded podcast i believe if it's not the most it's one of the most and it's an interview uh, by an author who wrote a book called grain brain and it is a just an absolutely fascinating interview and what i really want you to pick up is (laughs) actually a really simple concept of just how important nutrition is and then after the podcast we'll we'll close up the episode and then I'll tell you a, a few really 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 simple yet powerfully effective hacks that you can enact into your life that will really really go a long way to putting you on the right path toward uh, good nutrition so check this out howdy folks it's Rob Wolf here this is episode 200 of the Paleo Solution podcast. And I am incredibly excited because we have today Dr. David Perlmutter. And, and Doc, I, I'm sorry, I keep I, mispronouncing your name. Um, Perlmutter, I know is the, the real pronunciation. My father was German and I can't not say it the, the German way. So apologies. <laughs> it's Dr. fine with me. Perlmutter, it works it's, for me. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great. I always uh, really look forward to opportunities to um, do I know what we're going to do today, and that is you know, speak from the heart about what both you and I think is really so fundamentally important. So I'm doing great. Thanks. Awesome. Well, I, 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 Doc, you've written several books. Uh, the, your forthcoming book is called Grain Brain, which I, I, both you and Dr. Davis 
I'm so excited for you guys, but at the same time, I'm so bummed that I didn't come up with a better name for my, <laughs> for my book. A, a, a genius name, fantastic book. I actually read it over the over the weekend, and uh, folks know that my daughter Zoe is 16 months old, and anything that uh, Papa is reading, she wants to read it too. So I got to read out loud uh, uh, whole paragraphs and, and uh, chapters of the book to her, and uh, it kept her entertained. So it, it's well, got to be pretty good. <laughs> your listeners need to know that I actually saw a picture of that on, on Twitter. So that was very cool. She was fascinated with the, the cover of the book, and, and uh, I actually pulled the cover off. And, and most papery items, uh, she ends up destroying in short order. You know, it, it's got to be a pretty robust item for her to not destroy it. And she carries that book cover around and lays it down next to her koala bear and really takes good <laughs> care of it. So I, I, well, I don't know. She was very smitten with the, the book cover. The only thing wrong with that story is, uh, for, for the listeners, the cover of the book is a slice of bread. <laughs> right. So I don't know what that portends for the future for your daughter, but hopefully uh, hopefully she knows what she's getting into. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We, she hasn't even uh, seen a slice of bread around the house yet, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But for folks who don't know your background, you are a board-certified neurologist. You're also a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Doc, give some folks a little bit, you know, that that is a incredibly brief uh, uh, description of, of your credentials and your background. You have an outstanding research background as well as a, a clinical practice. Give folks a little bit of breadth and depth on, on what your background is like. I'd be delighted to. Uh, I do practice neurology. Um, I've been doing that for about 30 years. And, you know, did jumped all the right hoops, I think, got a real good foundation in the neurosciences, started in when I was probably around 12 years old, holding retractors in the operating room for my dad as he would remove brain tumors. So I kind of, wow. I got, I, I would say I cut my teeth, but I didn't have all my teeth at that point. Um, got an early start and began to, uh, my research in the neurosciences at uh, 19 and published my first paper in the Journal of Neurosurgery when I was 20. So I've been at this a long, long time. And really when I went into neurology, I was excited, but at the same uh, time I was a bit uh, not dis not just disappointed, but I, I felt uh, very inadequate because, you know, all we were doing was treating symptoms. We were treating the smoke and ignoring the fire. So I've really spent the last at least two decades trying to figure out what is the fire? What is the ultimate first order of business in terms of dealing with such devastating conditions as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, you name it. Because, you know, in reality, what we focus on, and we is in quotes, is really just treating symptoms of our most perni pernicious maladies that people fear the most. And, you know, it's really become very, very clear to me that things as simple as carbohydrates are devastating for the brain and that things like Alzheimer's disease are preventable. And it, you know, here I spend my entire day, people come to see me from around the country, you know, this past week, around the world, uh, with, you name it, one devastating, challenging problem or another. And, uh, you know, what, what's tugging at my heartstrings on two levels is, is for these people, number one, it didn't have to be. And number, true, number two, uh, truthfully, um, you know, each morning before I go to work, before I go to my clinic, I go across the parking lot to a, an assisted living facility and... Mm. There is my father, a brilliant neurosurgeon who now is in the throes of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, uh, I get it on multiple levels that uh, we are in a situation where we are told, 
live your life come what may, and then when something happens, we're going to have a magic pill for you. And, you know, that pill is hard to swallow when you realize there is no treatment today. With all the wonderful advancements that we talk about, there is no treatment for this disease, Alzheimer's, for example, affecting 5.4, 5.5 million Americans that number predicted to double by the year 2030. And how are these individuals treated? They give them a pill that, you know, even our best research, our best science will tell us is ineffective. And even more importantly, that is a disease that is preventable according to our most well-respected research. The Lancet Neurology has published a recent report from uh, researchers at UCLA showing that more than 52% of the 5.4 million Americans didn't have to walk down that road. And it's not just for them. It's for their families that this didn't have to happen. Because, you know, truth of the matter is the Alzheimer's patient isn't suffering as much as the family and the loved ones. And I know that firsthand. It's a challenging situation. It, um, you know, especially when you keep in mind all of the literature that so clearly points to the role of carbohydrate in the human diet in terms of changing proteins in the brain and dramatically inducing inflammation and the action of chemicals called free radicals and the role that these play in terms of destroying brain tissue. And, you know, to, to get your arms around that, it is a very sobering kind of, of notion. I um, just recently published uh, a, a lead article for Newsweek magazine, uh, which is now The Daily Beast, and it was it was widely uh, appreciated. It was the number one media citation of the day. It even was, wow. uh, I guess, more exciting than Hosni Mubarak getting let out of jail in Egypt. It was. It was that was number two. And the point is, though, that um, people are desperately scared of this situation, who don't have it or don't uh, you know have a family history of it, and those who do are even more concerned. But uh, you know, certainly any of those individuals who have personal experience with it in a family member realize how devastating it is and so that's the mission and you know people say well you know you're really thinking outside the box and my response to that is no that's not the mission the mission is not to think outside the box the ultimate mission is to make the box bigger so that these ideas which are predicated founded on mainstream science published peer-reviewed science become the norm become accepted because, you know, when I wrote Grain Brain, all of those citations are from journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Proceedings of the Mayo Clinic, you know, journals with very high regard. And, you know, we'll walk through some of those in a little while to, to just really focus on what is current science telling us in terms of healthcare practitioners about what really matters. And I am not talking about the advertisements in those journals. I'm talking about the actual content of the journals themselves. So we really want to take a look at that stuff and ask ourselves, yeah, these things are happening. What can we do to keep it from happening? You know, John Kennedy in his inaugural address said the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. Right. And, and, and that means, prevent, to me it means, preventive medicine in the field of neurology. Who knew? It's fundamentally important. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a shocker, and you know, I, I gosh, I, I don't want this to be too much of a, a, a almost self-aggrandizing setup here, but it, you know, you're you're talking about thinking outside the box or a bigger box, but uh, 
where for me when I read your book, and I'm I'm very much uh, uh, in you know, uh, coherence with everything that you're talking about, the gluten, the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, dysregulation of insulin, dysregulation of leptin, sleep, uh, you know, the whole story. But for me, I, I think that what, what's fascinating is that you have both the clinical background. So like the, the boots on the ground, like waging the war day to day, trying to deal with this situation. And, and I, I you know, uh, Correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it seems like you became very frustrated with the lack of an arsenal to be effective in, in treating this stuff. And somewhere along the line, you started looking around and this kind of evolutionary biology concept kind of made its way into your your practice. And this is a lot of what you're predicating your, your research on. And, you know, lots of people, Lauren Cordain, Gary, uh, Gary Tobbs, lots of people have been able to be very, very effective in the way that they are looking at uh, these uh, uh, complex degenerative diseases by actually making the story very, very simple. Instead of going so far down the rabbit hole in molecular biology, let's rewind the tape and try to figure out, well, what was kind of like the norm for our species and what, you know, what, what did that look like and was there uh, overt pathology? Like, did we see tons of cardiovascular disease? Did we see tons of cancer or neurodegenerative diseases 50, 100, 200, 2,000, 20,000 years ago? You know, do we have evidence of this stuff? Like, it, it, I, and again, I don't, I don't want the, you know, this to be putting words in your mouth, but how does all that kind of in, intuit for you or how does that inform the way that you practice medicine? The bottom line is that, you know, we really have two things to look at in terms of validating our perspectives. Uh, we have current, uh, hopefully objective science uh, to the, the best standard that you wish to put forth in terms of judging the validity of science. And then we have to look back at history. And, you know, when you mention names like uh, Dr. Cordain, you know, he is certainly all about what we have eaten as a species for the past 2.5 million years. And the truth of the matter is when you mention things like cancer and coronary artery disease and dementia and autoimmune problems, you didn't mention, but that's got to be on the list. Right. As a species, we could not, we wouldn't be here today had those things been as crippling to us as a species as they are today. That said, our genome has been fine-tuned to respond to extrinsic factors, environmental factors, including, most importantly, I believe, uh, food and levels of physical activity. So we have honed our DNA to be uh, as receptive and uh, wonderfully responsive in a very positive way based upon the food choices that we have been making for the past 2.5 million years. So what did we have to eat for 2.5 million years? Well, we didn't have uh, energy drinks. We didn't have bagels. We didn't have grain as a category. We basically didn't have much in the way of carbs at all. You know, one of the notions that I put forth in the book a grain brain is uh, you know well beyond the gluten issue, and that is that we really have to reassess how much fruit we're taking in. And you know, uh, a lot of people can maybe get their arms around gluten sensitivity as an in inducer of inflammation and all the downstream effects of that. But when you start saying, well, you know, the six servings of fruit that you were told to have a day uh, each day, that is inappropriate because basically what I'm saying is, you know, we can look at the physiology of insulin. Uh, and um, insulin sensitivity effects and raising hemoglobin A1C and having all these effects of challenging your body with glucose and fructose from eating fruit. But beyond that, I think it's, it's really important to look upon 
what that is doing to us uh, in the, the bigger picture in terms of overall health, not just through those mechanisms, but in terms of, of, of powering the body. The bottom line is the human physiology has never been powered by carbohydrates to any significant degree, number one. And number two, throughout 99.9% uh, .9 of our time on this planet, we had almost no access to carbohydrate. The only time we might get some berries uh, or, or primitive apples or something like that would have been in the late summer, early fall, when we were living a life in harmony with our surroundings. Now, why would we gravitate towards those carbohydrates in the late summer and early fall? Because that's a time when the starch, the carbs in the, in the fruit would break down to form sugar, and it was sweet. So it was best for us to challenge our bodies with carbs at that time of year, turning on the signaling pathway to make fat so that we could survive the winter during a time of food scarcity. And frankly, that's also a time when the fruit offers up to us in a very loving way, I, I like to imagine, uh, all of the wonderful phytonutrients that are at their highest level when fruit is ripe. And we return the favor because that's when the seeds are ready to germinate and we would have spread those seeds around. So it really worked for everybody. The problem is now that we are challenging our physiology with carbohydrates 365 days a year for a winter that never comes. And we're paying the price for that. So you know, again, to get back to the notion of what I do, and that is I deal with neurologic problems like ADHD, depression, dementia, and at first blush, one would wonder, well, how in the world could something like dietary carbohydrate influence a person's risk for becoming demented? And when you look at the literature, it's been there for years from, again, our best institutions indicating that it's the carbs, baby. It's all about the carbs. And if you want to know the specifics of the biochemistry, basically it's really quite simple. One mechanism by which carbohydrates are damaging the human brain, and I don't mean to be too technical here for your listeners, but it's a process called glycation. And glycation simply means that sugar in the body binds to protein. And when sugar in your body, from your diet, from eating a high-carb diet, binds to protein in your body, that process called glycation is bad news for two reasons. Number one, it dramatically enhances the production of chemicals that mediate inflammation. And number two, it may increase the production of free radicals, which are oxidants, uh, by as much as 50-fold. So the cornerstone of the deterioration of the human brain is this process of glycating or binding to sugar of our proteins. Now, a simple test that people can have their doctor do, diabetics are very familiar with this, is a test called A1C. And A1C is a very straightforward marker of this process, glycation of protein. In this case, it's a protein called hemoglobin. So the, the test is called hemoglobin A1C. Now, diabetics use the hemoglobin A1C, or their doctors do, to get an eye, keep an eye on exactly what is the average blood sugar a person has maintained over the previous, let's say, three to four months. But beyond just getting that bit of information, the A1C is a very valuable tool to understand how aggressively a person is glycating their proteins. 
and therefore how aggressive they are creating infl inflammatory chemicals as well as free radicals. So this is, is profound. There is a direct relationship of the level of hemoglobin A1C and the rate at which the brain deteriorates. So I want to say that again. This simple lab study that people have used over the years to measure their average blood sugar who were diabetic, A1C directly correlates to the rate at which the brain shrinks and specifically the memory center. And I have a graph of this that I hand out to my patients. I handed it out twice today. I actually work today. And it is so compelling because here's the take-home message. The A1C that relates to the rate at which your brain is shrinking is directly related to the carbohydrates that you consume. So uh, if anyone's interested, that's, uh, that was published in the journal Neurology. That's perhaps the most well-respected neurology journal on the planet way back in 2005, uh, volume 64, page 1704, if anyone's interested. I, but, I'm sure people <laughs> will be. And, and you go into I, great detail in that study and describing that process in the book as well. And I created a graph in Grain Brain because if, if you get nothing else out of reading that book, you will understand that you, and that is every one of us, has now the tools, the empowerment to control the rate at which your brain degenerates. And that is to say, the, perfectly uh, predicated on the amount of carbohydrate that you consume. So, you know, when I say that people should have a very low carbohydrate diet and a very high fat diet, uh, which is in line with people you've mentioned, Gary Tobbs and Lauren Cordain, uh, and it's not just because they said it. When you look at what is published, for example, by the National Institutes of Health, there was a study that recently was published January of 2012, and it came from the Mayo Clinic, and they found about a 42 to 48 percent increased risk of dementia in those individuals who had the highest carbohydrate, lowest fat diet. Going high fat reduced risk of dementia dramatically. And when I say dementia, by and large, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, again, a disease for which there is no treatment. And here's information coming to you directly from the Mayo Clinic saying that if you increase your dietary fat and cut your carbs, this is associated with a dramatic reduction in risk for a, a, a disease for which there is no treatment. Where is the disconnect? The disconnect is because I guess this type of information cannot be monetized, so no one talks about it. And, um, you know, again, at first blush, that's challenging to a guy like me, very challenging. And what it, what's the action? The action is go ahead, write the book, get out there, you know, do the public uh, television uh, special where all I talk about for 90 minutes is basically this idea that, number one, the science supports it. And number two, this is what we've done for 99.9% .9 of our time on the planet. We've eaten a high-fat diet, low in carbohydrates. And to be perfectly clear, it's fundamentally important that listeners understand that all fats are not created equally and that you know when I'm saying uh, high-fat diet, I'm certainly not referring to the, the Twinkie aisle. I'm referring to uh, extra virgin, hopefully organic, olive oil, coconut oil, nuts and seeds and grass-fed beef and uh, free-range dairy and right. absolutely free-range uh, uh, eggs, 
uh, if people don't have an egg allergy. Um, and loading up with those, uh, those sources of calories that your body is desperate for. Now, you know, the human brain is 60 to 70% fat and it's not made from anything in the atmosphere. It's made from the fat that you consume. And you've got to consume foods that are high in these wonderful natural health supportive, heart supportive, yes, high fat diet, good for your heart, best for your heart, uh, these foods. And, you know, I, I get a kick out of it because each day in my office when I'm seeing patients, uh, my patients say, you know, I'm, we're really on a very careful diet. And I say, oh, really? Uh, do you eat much fat? And <laughs> I do it to punish myself, I think. <laughs> they say, oh, no, we're very careful. We're on a low fat diet. And I, I know I... Um, I probably get another gray hair every time I hear that answer. But that said, you know, the mission, the word doctor doesn't mean healer. It means teacher. And I think you and I both, you know, our mission is to, is to teach what we feel is the truth. Could we be wrong? Yeah, we've got to keep an open mind and maybe we are wrong. But, you know, over my decades of studying this, this is now, you know, it's, it's not just that uh, this is what I believe, but, um, you know, it's at the depth of, of who I am based upon, as I said, not only the science, but historically what we've eaten, what our genome has been, what we've today in, in this time that we're living, each and every person walking the planet, the genome that we carry, the DNA, our genes, have been selected based upon this 2 million, 2.5 million year environmental exposure. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the fact that throughout most of that time, we were conducting ourselves to live in harmony with our DNA. Now, since the advent of agriculture uh, 10,000 years ago, and interestingly enough, if you uh, read the National Geographic, last month's episode, uh, episode last month's journal uh, issue was really quite profound, and the cover was sugar, why we love it, and it, cre- it uh, traced the history of, of sugar uh, going back to when the sugar cane was uh, for, first uh, discovered in New Guinea and then exported to to Asia and how it, it just exploded. The reason sugarcane exploded like it did uh, was, number one, it was portable, but, number, but most importantly, uh, it's because we love sweet. You know, when somebody says that he or she has a sweet tooth, that's not unique. Every person walking the planet has genetically a sweet tooth. Why? Because we are programmed to seek out sweet because that allowed us to survive for all these years because sweet meant ripe and it meant eat those foods and you will make it through the winter. Sweet induced insulin production, storage of fat, made it through the winter. Now, it's hard to distance ourselves from our sweet tooth and it takes discipline. Uh, To have an apple a day, I'm not hugely upset by that. But, you know, a glass of orange juice that people think is a good choice because it's not, uh, you know, it's fresh squeezed and it's from Florida and it's got a lot of vitamin C, that would be probably amongst the worst things you could have to start your day. Why? Because a glass of orange juice has 36 grams of sugar. (laughs) That's nine teaspoons of sugar. That's the same as having a can of cola. So, you know, the the mission here is to provide this information. People think they're making a good choice by having whole grain bread, um, a bowl of uh, a cereal that's also whole grain, and a nice tall glass of fresh squeezed orange juice. That is a carb load uh, that is 
so damaging to physiology and specifically for the brain and sets the stage for absolutely inappropriate energy availability throughout the course of the day, making people uh, need to have a a mid-morning snack, which is basically carbohydrate because they need that quick fix of glucose yet again uh, because their sugars are plummeting, you know, obviously turns on uh, the risk for all kinds of horrendous things like diabetes and cancer as well as Alzheimer's disease and also sets the stage for even early on becoming uh, insulin resistant. In other words, creating a situation where your body cells do not uh, longer accept the signal from the pancreas of insulin and be able to deal with, with this huge rise in blood sugar. So, Who's telling us to start our day with the whole grain goodness and the glass of orange juice? Well, basically, that information is courtesy of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It is quite interesting to me that the USDA is so influential in terms of giving us the mandates about what we should or shouldn't eat when the primary mission of the USDA is to take care of farmers who grow the oranges and the wheat. Yeah, the, the mission <laughs> statement is essentially uh, to to expand the uh, economic market of the the United States food producers, and yeah. you, you do it on both ends. You supply, you, you influence supply and demand, right. <laughs> and it's it's a, a perfect scenario, and it's killing us. It's at, it's breaking the bank, and it's you know directly leading to the death of hundreds of thousands of individuals who aren't getting the truth. Uh, and unfortunately, this is so uh, unnecessary. You know, to talk about the economics, uh, the RAND Institution uh, in, uh, I think, February of this year, publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, revealed what are the costs of things like dementia, coronary artery disease, and cancer treatment in the United States based upon their survey of the year 2010. And what they found was really uh, breathtaking because uh, cancer care uh, in the United States was about $71 billion. Coronary artery disease, much higher, around 100 to $110 billion. And treating dementia patients was 200 or $210 billion, meaning we're spending triple what we're spending on cancer in trying to deal with this overwhelming uh, onslaught of patients who are becoming demented. And again, it's it's preventable. It's diet related you know this is not news we're talking hippocrates here that you know let food be your medicine and medicine be your food uh, an interesting sto- uh, publication re- recently came out in the journal public health uh, where uh, a public health uh, mph individual looked at the causes of death over a 10-year span in the 10 uh, most populous western countries and he found that Many diseases actually were declining, but that deaths from neurologic cause were increasing dramatically, around 64% uh, increase in men and more than 92% increase in women in one country alone, which led the pack, and that was, of course, the United States of America. And we're not genetically different from our European brethren. What we're doing here is we're influencing our gene expression, a, a... a process called epigenetics, negatively to create this scenario and look what's happening. And it doesn't have to be. Doc, you, you know, there will be people who will get wrapped around the axle of, of what we're 
describing is the mechanism here? You know, is it is it just carbs? Is it just insulin spiking, or is it hyperpalatable foods that cause people to overconsume total calories, and then that leads into like some mitochondrial, uh, uh, you know, uh, dysfunction? Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think the the thing that people really need to understand, and this is where I've I've tried to keep a, a foot in. I guess uh, uh, both camps, you know, uh, uh, both looking at things from a, a calorie-based standpoint and also from a hormonal-based standpoint, is when we start seeing things head south, when we see that A1C head in an unfavorable direction, when fructosamine starts increasing, when we see systemic inflammatory factors, when we start seeing, cog- you know, even the very, very early beginnings of cognitive decline, then regardless of what the mechanism of causation is, our fix is a low-carb diet. Do you think that that's like a pretty, I feel like that's a pretty indefensible, a very defensible spot to be like we, we may be right or wrong on different elements of, of what the mechanism of causation is. But when we start seeing problems, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, prediabetes or early stages of, of a neurological decline, a low carb diet, particularly with some, some ketosis thrown in is going to be incredibly therapeutic for that. Do you, do you think that's a safe safe place to, to be? Well, first, I want to say this is a great interview. Uh, I'm This is just fantastic information. I mean, you're so well-informed and enthusiastic about this. And I just, to, just to say as an aside, I'm really enjoying this. Oh, thanks. Uh, that said, um, I think it's important that when you say low-carb, you are saying in the same breath, high-fat. And that's right. a good thing. So... Uh, you know, it's not just the fact that we're cutting down on carbs and therefore hopefully positively influencing things like satiety and allowing people to, you know, uh, enhance once again their suppressed leptin signaling system, which is what they've been doing by eating a lot of carbohydrates. So to step it down, leptin uh, is, uh, it, you know, has a role to play in in knowing when it's time to push away from the table. When you are pounding your body with carbohydrates, your brain responds, uh, becomes what we call leptin resistant, and you no longer really sense that leptin level. And what happens is, in fact, your your uh, stomach cells, uh, rather your fat cells, begin to secrete higher levels of leptin. And uh, you know, w- when you see uh, people that are fat, they have higher levels of leptin, which isn't working. So it, it's far beyond the mechanism of what I mentioned earlier, the glycation of proteins. It is, you actually mentioned mitochondrial function, the mana, the, the most precious fuel for the mitochondria is fat. And if you take this to an extreme of going as low as you can on carbohydrates and pump the dietary fat, eat supplemental coconut oil or MCT, medium chain triglyceride oil, you actually create a situation called ketosis, which is just bringing your mitochondria, the energy producers in every one of your cells back to life and stimulating a process called mitochondrial biogenesis. The mitochondria, yes, they produce energy in your brain cells and in in all the cells throughout your body for the most part. Some cells don't have mitochondria. But the brain is a highly energy-dependent organ as you might think. And fat is a brain superfuel allowing the mitochondria to work, create energy, and give the brain what it needs. But beyond their role in terms of manufacturing molecules called ATP, the the currency of energy, what is so fundamental to understand is that the mitochondria, which are tiny little particles within the cell, dictate whether that cell will live or die. 
there are enzyme pathways turned on by targeting certain genes that indicate uh, whether the cell is going to live or die. We call the process of, of programmed cell death apoptosis, which uh, is a, a set of genes that signals this uh, cell to commit suicide, basically. And again, it's the mitochondria that control the process of cellular death. They wield what's called the sword of Damocles. When mitochondria are dysfunctional, they're not getting what they need to, to live in and be happy, they'll signal that cell to die. Now, you can make your mitochondria happy by giving them fat and depriving them of carbs. There's actually a medical food on the market now uh, that you can get by prescription to treat Alzheimer's disease that gives mitochondria the right fat. Uh, you know, for years we've been using some, uh, something called coconut oil. Uh, no prescription needed. And that's actually a brand new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. It was only described in the Vedic texts over 2,000 years ago. So uh, that's the uh, literature. I can't give you the exact citation and volume and page number for that one. But, you know, it's interesting to revisit uh, what uh, knowledge has come to us from a long, long time ago, not just through advertisements in current medical journals. So we're saying, again, low-carb versus a low-fat diet. If you looked at the New England Journal of Medicine published on July the 17th, 2008, they actually, uh, there's an article that's it's a two-year trial, of an interventional trial where they put some people on a high-fat diet and some people on a low-fat diet. And they had 322 moderately obese individuals. And what they found at the end of the two years was that those individuals who ate the most fat had the most favorable changes across the board in every cardiovascular and brain-related risk parameter measurement that you can think of. For example, the HDL or good cholesterol went up dramatically in the folks eating the low-carb, high-fat. Triglycerides went down 23.7 points in people eating the most fat and only went down 2.8 points in people on the low-fat diet. So 10, almost 10 times uh, drop in uh, dangerous triglycerides, as you would expect, when you cut down on the carbs. LDL levels, so-called bad cholesterol, there's absolutely nothing bad about LDL. It carries life-giving cholesterol throughout the human body, uh, was much improved in individuals who went on the high-fat, low-carb diet. Uh, looking at insulin parameters and even looking at weight loss, the high-fat people lost and kept off the most weight. So that when you see these commercial enterprises for uh, weight loss, I mean, everybody's desperate for weight loss, putting you on a low-fat diet because fat is the enemy, it is, it is so uh, perverse and so out of touch with history and out of touch with science, and yet that's what people think they need to do. And when you uh, realize that individuals like uh, Dr. Atkins, for example, who years and years ago tried to popularize this notion that high fat is consistent with uh, improvement in various parameters, and so many people ridiculed him. I gave a lecture at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium uh, in February, and I said, you know, Dr. Atkins was really on to something early on, and we should have paid attention because this, you know, this is a couple of decades ago, and, and, and then I went on to t talk more about the science. At the end of my lecture, 
uh, you know, several people came up to ask me questions. And one woman came up and uh, put out her hand and she took my hand and uh, she just said, you know, I just really want to thank you for, for what you said about Dr. Adkins. And I looked at her name badge and it was his wife. Oh, wow. And it was just so touching because, you know, Dr. Adkins, um, even while he was alive, got raked across the coals for what, you know, he was saying, which was, in so, was so contrary to the party line of the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association. And, you know, to this day, people challenge the, you, uh, Gary Taubes, uh, Lauren Corda- uh, Cordain, uh, day, in, you know, day in and day out based upon what we're saying. But I think, you know, there was a great uh, YouTube interview uh, of uh, both uh, Dr. Dean Ornish um, and Gary Taubes debating this. And I think that's the kind of forum that is so fundamentally important to vet the science. Okay, you know, let's talk about what matters, not from your emotional perspective, but at least let's take a step back and what does the science tell us? So interestingly enough, um, at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium, which is coming up uh, in February of 2014, uh, we're opening that conference with a dietary debate about what is the science telling us, what should we be telling our patients and other healthcare providers in terms of what really, you know, what is the truth here? What, what does, what makes sense? It's fantastic stuff. I, it's, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. It was the same, the same week that Atkins was stripped of his medical license for the second time. The same congressional committee, uh, deemed that sugar was an anti-nutrient, that it was antagonizing towards health. And, And so it's just ironic. The, uh, the disconnect there, like somebody who was basically saying, you know, sugar really isn't all that great. And there's this different way of looking at this stuff. And, uh, you know, in, in the almost the same brushstroke, they not only took away his medical license for a period of time, but, uh, you know, also had the, the wherewithal to uh, recognize sugar as being a possibly problematic entity. So it, it's ironic, the uh, the disconnect in there. Doc, you, you know, your, your book is impressive because it doesn't just focus on the, this kind of insulin leptin dysregulation, but you really in my opinion, uh, uh, button down the uh, uh, systemic inflammation autoimmunity story really, really well. And you're really putting gluten at the, the kind of centerpiece of all that. Like how, how long in your, your clinical process did it take you to, to arrive at that? And what was the, the you know, and again, I'm, I, I feel like, um, uh, you know, singing to the choir, maybe putting putting words in your mouth here, you, you know, but, but clearly I, I agree with you on this stuff. But what was the process of you learning about gluten and where, where was kind of the aha moment for you with that? Well, it really stemmed from my early work in dealing with people who had celiac disease and recognizing that that in and of itself, according to the literature, was associated with profound issues uh, like cognitive decline. Uh, Dr. Hugh H. Hugh from the Mayo Clinic actually published that in the, uh, you know, the beginning of this, uh, of two, around 2000, showing that we should be suspicious of, of celiac disease uh, in individuals with cognitive decline and uh, really no other explanation. So I began thinking about that in my treatment of dementia patients, and they began telling me that uh, when they went gluten-free, other things were happening like headaches were going away, uh, focus was improving. And then I had an interesting case of a a young man who 
came to see me with a movement disorder, 22 years old, and he had uh, myoclonus, his arms and legs were jerking, and interestingly enough, he had also some headaches, some poor performance in school earlier on, and some gastrointestinal issues, and I said, what the heck, we're going to test him for gluten sensitivity. He was positive. We took him off of gluten, and the movement disorder went away. Now, he was offered two things from his neurologist. He was uh, lived in, Col- in Colorado, uh, and that was, number one, uh, either we were going to Botox all of your arms and legs or, number two, take a type of blood pressure medication and hope that it would help. He went gluten-free and actually videotaped him before and after, and it was, it's really quite remarkable. So, you know, those are the kinds of experience. You know, Louis Pasteur once said that chance favors the prepared mind. So once I started seeing that stuff and learning about it and, and digging as deeply as I could, I realized that uh, this is out there in the, in the world, that there are researchers uh, who have been looking at neurologic issues related to gluten sensitivity for a long time, publishing their results, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, nobody's been taking... Uh, Largely pancreas. being ignored. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's a Dr. Marius, his last name is Hajivasalu, and he's in England, and he has correlated gluten sensitivity with any number of neurologic problems and most importantly, uh, has called to our attention the fact that people can have not only neurologic problems, but problems throughout the human body and may not necessarily have to have any gastrointestinal problems at all. You know, these days, still the party line in mainstream medicine is that unless you've got a GI issue, uh, you can eat all the gluten you want till it comes out of your ears. There can't be a problem because you don't have celiac disease. Well, Dr. Hajivasalu called the top gluten uh, leaders in the world together to meet with him in 2011, and they took this all apart and recognized that there are actually three clinical entities that are distinct. Number one is allergy to wheat, which is kind of an acute, what we call IgE, mediated allergy. It's like people who are sensitive to shellfish or peanuts where they get hives and maybe trouble breathing. That's number one. Number two, there's full-blown celiac disease, uh, which is an autoimmune-type problem where the small intestine becomes grossly inflamed. And number three, there's a larger group of individuals who have what is called non-celiac gluten sensitivity or simply they're gluten sensitive. And that is at least 30% of humans who have an inflammatory reaction when they consume gluten. Now, Inflammation is, again, the cornerstone of our most dreaded diseases, coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Again, Parkinson's is an inflammatory disease and even cancer. So 30% of the world's population, at a minimum, are challenging their physiology with a signal that is turning on inflammation. And that signal is coming from wheat, barley, and rye, and it's called gluten. Now, beyond that, it turns out that when you consume gluten or foods that contain gluten, it signals in the intestine the production of another chemical. I don't mean to be too technical, but hopefully we, we, get, we get pretty geeky. Good. I'm there. I'm geeky. Wild. Yeah. Uh, it's, so consuming gluten turns on a production of something called zonulin, and in the intestine, zonulin makes that intestine leaky. When the intestines leak protein into the bloodstream, that's a problem. It leads to inflammation, autoimmunity, and cancer. And according to work from Harvard researcher Dr. Alessio Fasano, with whom I, I lectured two weeks ago in Los Angeles, 
This is present in 100% of humans, that the zonulin signaling by gluten induces permeability of the gut and, incredibly now, permeability of the brain by opening up what is called the blood-brain barrier. So <laughs> we're just at the beginning of this unbelievable situation uh, understanding how pervasive this uh, gluten sensitivity thing may be in terms of any number of devastating conditions that affect humanity. And, you know, we're just beginning to get our arms around it. I, you know, there's a great quote by um, Dr. Hajavasalu, and he says, we must advance such concepts by abandoning historical misconceptions, meaning uh, about gluten and celiac, and reviewing current literature in an analytical and disinterested way. It is time to move from from gut to brain. And that means that we've got to understand that... uh, you know, the, the gluten is not a gut problem exclusively. And in fact, at times, and in fact, quite often, the gut isn't even clinically involved and the brain can be involved. So when I put a kid on a gluten-free diet who comes to see me uh, because he's been diagnosed as having ADHD, and two weeks later, the parents get a phone call from the teacher saying, thank you for medicating your child, I have to pay attention to that stuff because it's real. When I have a patient coming in with rheumatoid arthritis, as demonstrated by blood work, positive rheumatoid factor, who goes gluten-free and is able to stop uh, powerful immunosuppressive medication, I've got to stand up and take notice. And beyond that, you know, I really feel called upon to get that message out. You know, William Davis did a wonderful job in Wheat Belly, still a New York Times bestseller. And now it's time to recognize that, yes, this is a powerful underrated player when it comes to causes of brain health issues you you know it's almost uh it's almost damaging to the cause that the the gluten that gluten affects so many basically can affect any any organ or tissue system in the body and so that being the case it's kind of like well could it affect reproduction yes could it affect cardiovascular parameters yes could it affect neurological parameters yes so then it starts sounding like you've got an answer you know cure for all ills which in a way you kind of do but then when you're trying to actually sound credible and not like a fruitcake then you you have some problems there but that really is kind of the story that's emerging out of this and it it, it's uh uh, i think we get both equal parts um you know buy-in but pushback also when when people really peel the onion and see what this story is it, it's quite remarkable but until folks do the uh, the skull sweat to read uh to read uh you know all the literature i'm, I'm going to open up a file here on my my uh desktop um celiac and gluten and in this i have uh eleven thousand thirty six journals and and peer-reviewed articles in it on on celiac gluten intolerance gluten sensitivity alone and I've read all of them. And, and now all of them aren't as, as pinpoint and on the mark as, as say, like Alessio Fasano's work, although every published article he has is, is in there. But, you know, it's, if people spend the time to read about this stuff, it becomes very, very compelling and interesting. And here again, from a clinical perspective, you're just asking people to do something simple. Let's pull out gluten-containing foods 
Let's recheck you in 30 to 30, 60, 90 days, see what your neurological tests are, see what your blood work looks like, and we'll just reassess from there. Absolutely. And, you know, when you say that, um, you know, the notion that people are going to give me pushback when I say that gluten sensitivity is is related to all the various diseases that we've talked about, um, I'm not saying that it's necessarily the case, but it could be. And if it could be, what's the harm, as you well say, of going gluten-free as opposed to treating symptoms only by taking your prednisone or taking your immunosuppressant medication? Hey, whatever. Give me a couple months. Let's go gluten-free. The world's not going to come to an end. And, you know, like you say, you've got to peel back that onion. That's a painful process. Uh, Tears will come to your eyes when you peel back the onion, figuratively and literally, because you're having to go to a place of less comfort. People generally in in America, Western cultures, want to pass the buck on to their doctors to do something and fix something, and I just want to get on with life and do what I want. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way because our most dreaded issues don't necessarily have uh, pharmaceutical fixes. And it turns out that lifestyle has to be number one on the list. It's got to be. It's the most important issue in terms of health. And in lifestyle, the number one player is food. And to this day, most medical schools in America don't teach any nutrition whatsoever. So guys like uh, I am uh, have to do it on their own. You've got to you've got to do the t- put the time in, and you have to study this stuff. And you know it, it's very tough. I mean. When I lecture to mainstream groups about these notions, about the toxic effects of carbohydrates, the role of gluten sensitivity in the brain, you know, I say, listen, I mean, many of you in this audience right now, if you get up early in the morning and look to the east, and uh, you you see the sun will rise in the east, uh, by noontime it's straight over your head, and then you tell yourself, and you're quite convinced that the sun sets in the west. And what I say to them then is, I got news for you. It's time to change the paradigm. Look at this in a different way. What I'm going to propose to you is that the sun isn't moving, that the earth is actually spinning. You know, it, it, Some of them get that and some of them don't. They don't know what I'm talking about, which is kind of scary. But, but that said, <laughs> you know, we believe the sun rose and traveled across the heavens for most of the time that we've been here. Only in recent history did we realize that it's the earth turning that gives it that appearance. I simply want people to take a deep breath. And not necessarily embrace what I'm saying, but at least consider the argument. So, you know, my book is called Grain Brain. And now there has been put up on the Internet uh, by the grain industry uh, a play on the name of my book. I think it's called Grains Are Good for Your Brain. Mm. And they offer up all of these statements about Alzheimer's and eating grain. I mean, it's just – Fine, make a statement, but I'd like to see the references. Show me the science that supports your statement. Because that's what the public deserves. The public deserves the knowledge, what is the current science telling us? Not just do whatever in heck you want, and when you're sick, we're going to give you a pill because it's good for the doctor and it's good for the pharmaceutical companies. It's just not right. And, you know, as a caregiver and family member of an Alzheimer's patient, I get it, as I've mentioned to you, I get that side of it as well, and you know that provides for me powerful motivation to uh, to do the very best I can day in and day out to 
research this information. You know, you're 11,000 references. You've done the work. You know what it's like. It's hard work because we're swimming upstream. Uh, and, and really, part two is do whatever we can, as you have done so well, to get that word out that you can make these changes today and go a long way to ensuring a longer and healthier life. And it's basically not that hard. Yeah, and, you know, my greasy used car salesman pitch is give it a shot, you know, see how you look, feel, and perform, track biomarkers of health and disease, and then at the end of that 30, 60, or 90 days, reassess, and if it's not worth it, then do something else by by all means. But, you know, generally it seems like when people look younger and feel better and can think faster and, you, you know, it's kind of like, well, okay, I, I, if I'm going to have some pizza, I'm going to have it, you know, once every two or three weeks and it's going to be gluten-free pizza. Done. You know, I mean, it's not that onerous uh, uh, an intervention. And, you know, then asking people to eat some uh, bacon and eggs and, you know, maybe a small cup of blueberries or something for breakfast. Is it, you know, is that really taking you out to a firing squad? You know, it's it, it, when you get used to that, that's really not that big a deal. And it's actually pretty enjoyable. Uh, Rob, I completely agree with you. And uh, people tend to enjoy those those uh, moments, uh, certainly a lot more. But it's the day in and day out uh, aggressive carbohydrate consumption that leads to elevations of glucose. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, what we, uh, in quotes, have said, uh, you know, a normal glucose, oh, 90 to 110, everything's cool. Uh, we realize that that's just not good enough anymore. Now, right. here, are, let me set up the fundamentals here. Your blood sugar, uh, strangely enough, relates to your consumption of carbohydrate. There's a stretch. I'm obviously, you know, being facetious here. Clearly, the <laughs> carbs that you eat are going to affect your blood sugar. To lower your blood sugar, you eat less carbs. Last month in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine appeared an incredible article, a uh, study looking at over 2,000 individuals. And what they did was they measured their fasting glucose and they measured their cognitive function. And what they found was that they followed these individuals for uh, 6.8 years. They measured their, sh their glucose and, and then followed for an average of, let's say, seven years. When they brought the people back and measured their brain function, what they found was that there is a direct correlation between their blood sugar levels and the rate at which their brain function declined. And again, this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, uh, volume 369, I hope I'm right, um, I don't know the page number, forgive me. But nonetheless, uh, the point is that this study showed that the people who weren't even diabetic, who had so-called normal blood sugar levels or what we would have defined as normal, you know, 105, everyone who says, hey, that's fine, 105, you're not diabetic, that's 126, so everything's great, keep eating the bread. Even at those levels of blood sugar, they were already at significantly higher risk for brain changes leading to dementia. It was just published. Um, I'm hoping uh, when this, uh, when you uh, post this, there's a, a link. We'll put a link to the uh, the article that I put in uh, Newsweek magazine. Um, or now it's called we'll, The Daily we'll Beast. To, Andrew shot us a, a number of, of links, and I'll make sure yeah. that he gets us all of that stuff. Yeah. Because there's a link in that article to these studies, which people gotcha. can read and raise their eyebrows to. Perfect, perfect. Doc, you know, expanding on the, the clinical tests that you do and circling back to the, uh, the gluten intolerance, you, you use the Cyrex labs, both the, I believe the panel three and the panel four. Could you 
tell people what are in those panels and kind of what you are looking at? Because one is looking specifically at gluten intolerance. The other one is looking at different kind of novel substances like chocolate and coffee and, and stuff like that that may have some gluten cross-reactivity. And how do you use that in your clinical practice? So we have really waited uh, for a long time for a really good predictive test uh, in terms of this whole notion of gluten sensitivity. And, you know, uh, 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 Cyrex came along and really filled that gap in an incredible way. Uh, I guess necessity is the mother of invention, and they knew there was this necessity. So prior to the advent or the availability of this Cyrex test, we were forced to get routine laboratory studies that would look at things like anti-gliadin antibody. And that it, gliadin is one of the components of gluten. Gluten is made up of two proteins, glutenin and gliadin. And to measure if a person was reactive to uh, gluten, we did a test called anti-gliadin antibody, which was interesting but hardly ever showed anything. And we then learned that there are uh, approximately 12 different isomorphs or types of gliadin that are found in gluten, along with a variety of other proteins found in uh, gluten that um, are gluten-containing products that people can react to. So that said, the Cyrex laboratory offered an evaluation of a vast array of antibodies against the various forms of gliadin as well as uh, other issues, uh, trans, uh, transglutaminase, various other types of proteins that we create uh, antibodies against uh, that can uh, cause troubles or an indication of gluten sensitivity. So for the very first time, we have this hugely comprehensive test that has identified individuals who are gluten sensitive that we, I, I can't say we would have missed, I can say we did miss because I've run the Cyrex test on people who had the earlier testing that was negative, and the Cyrex test has lit, up like, has lit up like a Christmas tree. Now, beyond that, we recognize that in individuals who are gluten sensitive, they may and frequently do demonstrate reactivity to various other proteins that are found in other things like uh, amaranth, uh, quinoa, um, chocolate, dairy. Uh, a variety of other foods, rice. And so the laboratory created a test called Cyrex number four that looks at the uh, 24 different possible cross-reactivities because, frankly, we do have times when people are, are aggressively gluten-sensitive. They go gluten-free, and in fact, their response may not be as ideal as, as they or you would have expected. We then run the Cyrex four test and say, ah, lo and behold, you're, you're sensitive to eggs, uh, as demonstrated in the study. Let's pop the eggs out of your diet and see where you go. And it's just, no pun intended, the icing on the gluten-free cake because uh, it really can uh, finally you know, give these people that edge. They're trying so hard. They're gluten-free in everything that they do, but they've just not been able to turn the corner. And you identify milk as an allergy or whatever else it may be, and they stop that and they're better. You know, and, and, and I will say certainly that the gluten sensitivity thing is not 100%. There are plenty of people who have gluten sensitivity uh, and sensitivity to other things, remove them from their diets, and they may not improve. To me, that's a call to heal the gut. Not only take away the offending agent, but put back aggressively probiotics, add in prebiotics or things that let those good bacteria grow, add in things like L-glutamine to realize because when you have constantly, for however old you are, all those years, challenged your intestines with this inflammation-producing 
uh, food, protein, whatever it may be, it takes some healing that has to happen. And part of the issue is that uh, we are so dependent on the health of the microbiome, the bacteria that live within us, that are in fact also damaged and changed in individuals uh, based upon inflammation caused by gluten. So it's not just removal of the offending agent, but we have to replete the gut with good bacteria and we have to heal the gut using such things as L-glutamine. Doc, do you ever do any, uh, uh, you know, more extended like parasite testing or looking at small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or do you, do you, will you refer out if you suspect something like that? Like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you handle that? Like if you have somebody who clearly has some very deep gut pathology, maybe um, even going into some like cortisol, HBTA axis dysregulation, but, you know, you're, you have this, this sense that it's kind of gut related. Like how do you tackle all that? It's a very good question because, you know, basically I'm a neurologist. So then I would say, well, this person has, you know, this fulminant uh, small bowel overgrowth syndrome, overgrowth of candidiasis, dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of good versus bad bacteria. So what would you think I would do? Well, I mean, commonly you'd say, well, let's refer them to a digestive specialist or a gastroenterologist. And unfortunately, over the years, I've learned that Many gastroenterologists, and, and, and no um, disrespect intended, don't really have a handle on that aspect of the gut in terms of what keeps the gut healthy or how to return the gut to health. You know, they are really good at doing uh, colonoscopies and taking out polyps and uh, treating using medications inflammatory diseases of the bowel. So, to answer your question, this neurologist, yours truly, uh, I deal with that absolutely myself. Nice. Uh, I, um, you know, I get the comprehensive digestive stool analysis test on a daily basis. We do the breath test for small bowel overgrowth. We use the antibiotic protocols that are important, keeping in mind that it's fundamentally desperately important to replete that situation using aggressive probiotics. So, uh, you know, I'm the one who does the the 24-hour cortisol salivary evaluations, and and which also includes melatonin. And, and I must deal with that. I can't. Uh, I have to embrace the whole person. You know, the hypothalamic pituitary axis that you talked about is fundamental in the degradation of the hippocampus, the brain's memory center. When cortisol is elevated, it is directly toxic to the brain's memory center and starts a process by which cortisol actually increases and continues to damage the brain's memory center. So, you know, I, I have to do that myself. I, I can't let... Um, you know, unless somebody's from out of town and I can call upon a colleague, then that's what I'll do. But generally, you know, I'll, I'll, I must embrace all that. We need we we need to clone you, and we need you in every <laughs> every city and every nook and cranny everywhere. I mean, this is a. Uh... This is, you, you know, I, I don't know if you're, you're aware, it, uh, I started this thing called the Paleo Physicians Network, but when my book was released, I, I started observing that, you know, my book, Mark Sisson's book, uh, uh, Lauren's book, we, we were, I was doing tons of seminars, we were, we were helping lots of people, but this basic approach of like lower carb, avoid gluten, avoid grains in general, that helped about 85% of people and it helped them dramatically, but there was another 15 or 20 percent of people that it helped them a little bit but they clearly needed a full functional medicine intervention like it just went beyond 
the basics. They either had gut pathogens or they had some HPTA axis dysregulation or combinations. And it was outside the, the scope of being able to cover that in a book. You know, you can't create a, a, a you know, a logic chart that's going to meet every single individual's needs. You need a, a trained clinician to to do that. So it's just so good to know that, that you know, this is, is what you're doing in your practice. Well, you know, basically, um, standard Western medicine tries to make you fit into a category. And uh, it, it's really paying more attention to the illness a person has rather than the person who has the illness. And oftentimes, patients do not fit into a specific box. They don't, there's not a specific name for what they have. And, you know, that's when you have to just take a deep breath and recognize that you're going to be, uh, dare I use the word, more holistic. I guess that's two words. <laughs> but you have to, and, and not, you know, the holistic approach is looking at the whole patient. Some people think holistic is the term used because they have a whole list of problems. Well, maybe that's true. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, when you say that, that uh, we should clone me and, and all that, I'm honored and flattered that you would say that. But, you know, what I do is I teach. And I'm an instructor at the Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, uh, they give a course several times a year called Applying Functional Medicine in the Clinical Practice. And how wonderful it is that we get two or 300 doctors from around the country to come to these seminars who said, you know, basically what they're saying is I didn't get enough in medical school. I know there's more out there and I want to I keep learning. And when I stand up and begin my uh, lectures to these groups, it's difficult for me to get started because I'm so taken by the fact that these individuals uh, humbly said, you know, I don't have all the tools and I want to learn more. And you look out uh, at the audience at these faces of, of physicians just desperate for this information because they want to dedicate themselves to being the best caregivers they can be. And that means basically giving the best information out to their patients. And it is just so empowering for me to see that people are becoming more and more interested in learning this stuff. And, you know, the more you learn, the less you, the more you realize how little you know. I mean, uh, the three of us, Dr. Fasano um, and Dr. William Davis and I lectured, as I said, in, in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of the conference, and several other physicians as well, and at the end of the conference, um, you know, we were having uh, dinner and I just said, you know, I, I, I feel... I feel like I know even less now than before because of all the information. I realize there's so many more places to explore. And so it's an ongoing, lifelong pursuit. And gee whiz, it is, uh, it, it's exciting. It, it brings back the, the excitement in, in the practice of medicine. It's, I wouldn't want to have it any other way. That's awesome. That's awesome. Doc, it, it, for this, this last kind of question, this is actually uh, uh, catering to my own um, selfish needs. Since okay. I'm, I'm trying, trying to be an old dude uh, athlete, I compete in Brazilian jiu-jitsu a little bit, and uh, always trying to, to tinker with my my um, my performance and health and longevity and everything. But you know, I've played with lower carb and really glycolytically demanding exercise, like CrossFit and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA and stuff like that. And I, I just can't seem to to get it to work. I, I know Peter Rutia has has been on a, a two year keto adaptation and exactly right you're exactly right where do you do you see that playing out for like for me i try to stick uh some carbs like sweet potatoes in my post-workout period and then after that i i'm largely you know would be uh uh 
ketogenic producing ratio of protein and fat if I were not eating those those carbs post workout but my blood work looks good my cognition is good my my performance is solid at, at 41 years old I'm able to to hang with the 20 year old kids in there and everything like where do you see that playing out like am I it, it, am I just doing a, a trade-off of some performance now for possibly some health and, and uh, longevity downside later on? Or do you think that that's a, a good way to, to maybe uh, ride the razor's edge of, of having both some good performance and, and mitigate some of the downside later? I think that, uh, and again, you know, I, I don't have much information about you, except now I know your age and I know that you're aggressively working out. And I know that you, with all due respect, well, that you, you, you think that you need to replete your glycogen stores post-workout by having sweet potato. And I think that's where, with all due respect, I think that's where you're making your big mistake because you're inhibiting exactly what you mentioned, that is keto adaptation. So if you really want to be able to um, burn, uh, burn fat, in other words, be able to burn uh, ketones throughout your workup and thereafter, Try not following your uh, exercise routine by having the sweet potato, and I think you're gonna you're gonna see that that's gonna allow you to, to much more aggressively keto adapt. Now, uh, what? I, and I don't know how aggressively ketotic you become. Uh, you can determine that by buying some keto sticks and testing your morning urine. But I would say that um, uh, not everybody can do it. But any high end athlete that I've worked with is have generally been able to to make this happen, but the key is to not fall into this mindset that you're going to have to carb load either before or after. And you know, a, a sweet potato is interesting. It's got nice carotenoids, nice fiber, but it's a pretty good carbohydrate re, uh, load. Mm-hmm. And and what you're doing then is you're you're supplying yourself, you know, easily digestible carbohydrate, bringing your sugar up. And that is what your cells are using to uh, adapt and in so doing create lactic acid and all the negative things that you don't want to do. So I, with all due respect, Rob, I don't know that you have fully keto adapted if you've been hitting the, uh, the sweet potato after your workout. Well, you know, for, for years I did uh, kind of gymnastics, sprinting, um, uh, less glycolytically demanding work, mm-hmm. and I, I actually ate a, a ketogenic diet or a cyclic ketogenic diet for years. I mean, years and years and years. I found uh, Dr. Atkins' book back in '98. Like my first foray into paleo was actually a ketogenic diet, and then I found CrossFit and actually got involved with with those guys very early in their their evolution, and then started doing uh, some stuff like uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and MMA, which is. It, you know, when you when you map out like the energy demands of the, the activities, it's very glycogen. like, it, it, you know, you have like a lactic and then uh, lactate producing, then more aerobic pathway type stuff. And it just hammers that glycolytic pathway. And uh, and so I've, I've played with this stuff, but I've got to admit, I, I didn't I didn't um, suck it up and do a two year, you know, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis uh, uh, program like. Uh, Peter has done, and Peter seems to be reporting, but, you know, it took him about uh, eight to nine weeks to get full aerobic pathway uh, uh, buildup on, on ketosis, but it's taken him about two years to figure out how to get his uh, anaerobic engine, you know, running at, at a very, very modest carbohydrate and protein load. You, you know, he'll get a little bit of a gluconeogenic spillover, but that doesn't seem to kick him out of, out of ketosis generally. So, it, it, and my, my ego is such that I, I just haven't allowed myself <laughs> to get the, the tar beat out of me for, for months on end to, uh, to get that keto adaptation. But I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, and I'm always trying to figure out how to, 
how to ride that that edge. But you know, the nature of my my sport, if, if I do five five minute rounds, that's usually about it. Whereas like Peter hasn't even warmed up it, it, until he's done two hours of, of uh, aerobic activity. So it's been it's been hard for me. Like the time indexing of my stuff is so short that I'm not I'm not sure if this is something that I, I can plug that ketogenic. Uh, well, you know, you, you might want to try. You might want to you might want to yeah. abandon that. Uh, the post workout uh, carb load is what you're doing. And, you know, for your listeners, they, they need to understand that uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, if you're actually doing the five minute rounds of combat, it is highly demanding or really any type of martial art where you're you're doing you know rounds of of, of kumite or, or fighting that it is extremely demanding uh exercise so um but you know again there are so many levels that you can look at at this you know this is uh, becoming uh ketotic is in the cornerstone of what i think is anti-aging medicine i i tell my patients about this, I say, you know, look at me. I'm going to be 75 years old, and they look at me, and I, you know, I don't necessarily tell them that's 17 years from now, but I say I'm going to be 75. <laughs> you know, but anyway, you know, the point is that uh, I, I think the cornerstone of the aging process is this glycation of proteins, uh, and it's incredible that the acronym for advanced glycosylated end products, which are these, glyc- yeah, is age, <laughs> age year. Who knew? How did that just happen to happen? You know. It's pretty breathtaking. It, occasionally, we get it right, right from the get-go. So, yeah. Yeah. But, um, again, uh, does everybody need to be so aggressively ketotic? Well, you know, truthfully, no one's going to be, uh, you know, 100% gluten-free, and people are going to have carbs. And in Grain Brain, you know, I, I, I give in to that, saying that, you know, let's try to keep carbs in general. Let's be sensible about this, 60 to 80 grams a day. That means, yeah, you can have a handful of blueberries or have an apple. There's going to be carbs in your vegetables. So, you know, live your life. There's a little lactose in your milk that or organic uh, um, full-fat milk that you're putting in your coffee, which I think is fair game. So, you know, my purpose there is to really reach as many people with the best information that we could, uh, recognizing that it has to be, for the broad appeal, it has to be user-friendly. So... You know that's the mission that I think you were challenged with when you wrote your book. We've been writing your books uh, that we all have been challenged with. I mean, you know, when you read "Why We Get Fat and What We Can Do About It" by Gary Taubes, yeah, it's it's pretty aggressive in terms of what he portrays. But I think you know, again, the mission for him was to portray the science uh, and why he has said what he has said. And you know, the same thing with uh, Lauren Cordain, who you know, obviously is a professor and dealing with this stuff every day in the laboratory. So he's got a wonderful hands-on uh, support for making these statements. So it's a very interesting time. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, Rob Wolf, what are we talking about? We're talking about powering the human body in a way that it has always been powered for, again, more than 99% of, of the time that we've been here. And all of a sudden, we are, the tables have been turned on us and not from our own doing. And People don't deserve that. They deserve to know that the food pyramid that they've been given is absolutely topsy-turvy and that the foundation of our food pyramid being grains and high-carbohydrate foods is absolutely the worst recommendation. And you have to ask yourself, what was the motivation ultimately behind giving the population that information to eat more whole grain goodness? Because it's absolutely killing people. Well, and you you alluded to this very 
briefly, but you know the uh, the economic cost of neurodegenerative diseases is only now starting to really hit the uh, the public awareness and policymakers and and whatnot. And you know we've been pretty wired into uh, heart disease and type two diabetes and and cancers, various types of cancers. But it looks like cognitive decline in neurodegenerative diseases could make all of the rest of that look like a drop in the bucket. And and I think that that is incredibly scary. But, you know, again, um, regardless of, of where we are on the mechanistic explanation, we have a mechanistic solution for this stuff, without a doubt. There is. That's, there, the that that's why you on. and I are here today, because yeah. this conceptually is actionable. It's not as if we're talking about theory here and at the end people say, well, that's kind of interesting. There is a a take-home message about what you should do today. And the first thing is recognize that it's carbs that are killing you and that doctors by and large haven't been trained in nutrition. And I would simply say to those individuals who go to their doctor, their cardiologist or internist, and that that person says to them, you know, you should be on a low-fat diet – the two questions would be, number one, why? <laughs> and number two, you're giving me nutritional advice. Where did it come from? Where did you learn this? And I don't mean to be rude in challenging that, but I think it's a fair question because there is no support for that anymore. You know, um, and, and this isn't news. We, we've, we talk about the Atkins diet. And uh, so what would science do? Science would take, let's say, the Atkins diet, and compare it to the zone diet. I mean, uh, I mean not the zone diet, the Ornish diet. So for, for the listeners, uh, Dr. Dean Ornish has proposed that fat is absolutely the worst thing that we could consume. We need to be on the lowest fat diet possible as opposed to obviously what Dr. Atkins proposed. Now that said, when you go low fat, you must by default increase your carb consumption. So that the Ornish diet being very low fat is by nature a higher carb diet compared to the Atkins diet. Now, if you go to the Journal of the American Medical Association published in March of 2007, March 7, 2007, that's how you can remember it. There's a study called, uh, it's called the A to Z trial basically, or you can Google that, A to Z trial, and then maybe put in JAMA, J-A-M-A. And what they found was that across the board, the Atkins diet blew the uh, Dean Ornish uh, low-fat diet out of the water in terms of any parameter that you might want to look at. Good cholesterol, total cholesterol, weight loss. Uh, Every measurement that you'd want to look at was improved on the Atkins high-fat diet compared to Dr. Ornish's uh, very low-fat, higher-carb diet. That's published by the American Medical Association. So what does the AMA tell us? They're telling us, Low carb, high fat. So the problem is, you know, you walk down the aisles in the grocery store and all you see is low fat with reduced fat Oreos or whatever it is. And people somehow take that as a a moniker of therefore healthful. And it's time to recognize, as I said earlier, that the sun doesn't rise. The earth is spinning. It's a different perspective based upon the most well-respected science that's available. That's how you and I got started on this conversation a while back is let's look at what the science is telling us right now. And the science speaks volumes. It absolutely does. And Doc, we're, uh, we're already at an hour and 20 minutes and I have a feeling we could probably be here for, for four hours. And I, I, uh, 
I didn't get to perhaps a fifth of the questions that I had for you. So uh, clearly, um, we, we've got to get you back on the show. Is, is there anything else that you, you want to cover before we, we wrap up? I know you're busy, so I don't, I don't want to capitalize your whole day here. But it, it, I wanted to talk about like uh, uh, brain-derived neurotropic factors and exercise. We're, we're going to have to hit that a, another day, and I know folks will love that. You do an amazing job covering that in your book and the, the recommendations from, from my perspective, I believe, are spot on. And it's not just my perspective. Actually, the science seems to uh, indicate this stuff, too. So uh, neither you nor, <laughs> nor I need to make it up. It's actually been pretty well Well, let's verified. do this. Let me offer this up as a prelude then as a teaser for our next episode, and that is that what you've brought up is this concept of epigenetics. And quite simply, that means that we control our genetic destiny. It is not hardwired in stone in our DNA. That our lifestyle choices, including exercise, sleep, uh, emotional experiences, and perhaps most importantly, the foods that we eat control the expression of our DNA. And I have to tell you, that is, you know, when I was in medical school in the 1970s, you would, you would never have said anything like that. They, might, they would burn you at the stake. But now we understand that we have powerful control that more than 70% of the genes that deal with health and longevity are under our direct control. And that is hugely empowering and relates to things like growing new brain cells in the brain that you, where else would they be, <laughs> that you alluded to through brain-derived neurotrophic factors. So let's continue this next time. I would be delighted to tackle that uh, subject and, and other things that you think are interesting. Uh, awesome. Well, all, everything you're doing is interesting. So the, this podcast will go up September 17th, which happens to be the release date of your book, correct? It is. Uh, brain, uh, Grain Brain has not been released yet, and it is, uh, here we are, you know, way before the release, it is now the number one book in America in neurology, in Alzheimer's, and dementia. And what does that say? Uh, it says, and these are people who haven't even seen the book yet, uh, it says that people just want this information that the status quo of taking a pill and hoping for the best, people are understanding that's just not good enough. So I am... I am so thrilled to, to see what's happening because finally you know, there's going to be the other side, the support for the fact that our lifestyle choices are fundamental players in our long-term health outcome. So it's a, bit, it's a new dawn. Well, and, and so to, to goose people, um, clearly if, if you're uh, really in a hurry, then uh, we will have links to buy – uh, grain brain from from the the show notes but even better than that so that we can help doc make it uh, not just onto the new york times bestseller list but uh, cl clean sweep and hit number one on the new york times bestseller go to a local bookstore ask them if they report to the new york times buy at least a copy if you buy multiple copies make sure that it's a, a different transaction so oh gosh of those books count <laughs> you're gilding uh, let, the let, lily here and i appreciate yeah, it let, let's let's really give this thing a, a go and and uh, kick kick this thing over the top because it, it's you know i do some work with uh, naval special warfare and and uh, uh, police and fire and this is a whole other thing that i want to talk to you about next time is actually a traumatic brain injury and the effects that a ketogenic anti-inflammatory diets can have on traumatic brain injury. And because we've been fighting a, a, you know, multiple wars for 10 years, our uh, folks in the military are, are experiencing shocking amounts of post-traumatic stress, uh, 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 traumatic brain injury symptoms. 
that are being very, very poorly managed. And this is a whole other area of the uh, cognitive neurodecline story that has dietary elements, but also has these epigenetic triggers of stress, low vitamin D, uh, uh, impact to the brain, both from shooting weapons and also, uh, you know, deploying parachutes and all kinds of different stuff that is really starting to manifest. And we're just seeing the beginning edge of this wave and this wave is going to build over time and it's going to be another big problem and everything that you describe in the book is completely appropriate for people that are dealing with those issues as well well then let me end by saying that in the words of the yellow emperor fourth century uh, bc uh, prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom to cure a disease after it has manifested is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging weapons when the war has already begun so you know, in addition to treating the various things that you've mentioned, you know, the, the notion of preventive medicine applied to brain health is unfortunately in its infancy. No one wants, you know, people talk about a heart smart diet or, or, or uh, aerobic uh, exercise weight bearing uh, for your bones. But where is this discussion about preventing devastating issues that relate to the brain, both traumatic and also degenerative? And yet we've got that knowledge. We've got that knowledge today. And, you know, that said, um, to get back to the book, I mean, I guess if, if this is playing today, and today is September 17th, that means today is the launch of my book. And, um, gee, I, I'm really very, very excited knowing that, that this is happening uh, today. And, uh, Rob, I want to thank you for this opportunity. It's been really great. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Uh, I, I told Doc before we started started recording that it's rare that um, I'm nervous before an interview at this point. This is show number 200. We've done a fair number of these, but I, I just respect you, respect your work, and was honestly very excited for a bunch of uh, very uh, selfish <laughs> reasons <laughs> to, uh, to talk to you on this. So I'm really excited and, uh, it, I, I, you know, really, uh, it really encourage people to go out and grab this book and, and uh, share it far and wide. It's going to be a, a game changer for folks. Well, thank you, my friend. You're, you're very kind. And again, um, the work you're doing is, is over the top. Uh, you know, it's all about information, and I, I applaud you for that. Well, thank you, and uh, uh, good luck, and uh, looking forward to getting you back on the show. Okay, sounds great. I'll talk to you soon, Rob. Great, Doc. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, hopefully that podcast emphasized something you already knew. I mean, you already knew nutrition was important, but now after listening to that, hopefully you realize like it's not just important, it's it's a life-changing, life-altering kind of thing. I mean, you truly are what you eat. If you put garbage in, your body is not going to react all that well. So that's the main point. I just wanted to drive home how important nutrition is. Okay, so here is my one major hack for the show, and it is also actually your homework. I want you to download this app. Uh, some of you may have heard of it, but if you haven't, uh, you need to get it, and you need to use it. It's called My Fitness Pal, and I'll put this in the show notes, but it basically tracks calories and macronutrients and micronutrients and and you can it's got an amazing database you any type of food that you type into this app it pretty much has it and then it has a really really cool feature where you can use your smartphone and you can scan the UPC symbols on the back of food labels and it will automatically upload all the nutrition data so 
if you eat a can of tuna and you just scan the Starkist can, uh, it will tell you how many pro how much protein grams are in there. Um, you know, any salt, fat, all that good stuff. It, it just drops down right to your phone. Is you need to track what you're eating. Now here here's the here's the real beauty of this hack. I not only want you to to track what you're eating. Uh, and this will tie into productivity, which happens next episode. But I really want you to start to plan your day ahead. So the next day, so if it's a Sunday night, I want you to go into my fitness pal and I want you to plan out what you're going to eat for breakfast, what you're going to eat for lunch, what you're going to eat for dinner, and what you potentially could have for snacks. Now, obviously, you can tweak it a little bit during the day, but if you actually plan the next day out and then there's all these kinds of different pie charts and stuff that you can use on this app so you if you hit the the nutrition count and you're you're too high on fat or too low on on protein or your carbs are off the chart you can actually adjust that and pick different foods and you can know before you even start the day what you're going to have to eat and you'll know it's nutritious food. So that's one real huge problem that people face. And I'm sure I'm sure we've all faced that. But you want to eat healthy, but it's lunchtime and you're starving and you're hungry and you need to eat something quick. So you go through the drive through and all of a sudden you're in the cycle where you're 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 crunch for time and you're eating bad food. And all of that, all of that can be avoided if you just take maybe five or 10 minutes the day before and do a little planning as to what you are going to eat the next day. If you can do that day in and day out, man, you're, you're going to make huge strides toward being really, really consistent with your nutrition. Another few things that I've learned, um, and I learned this from a book called The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss, and I'm sure we'll mention him again, but it's a pretty fascinating book. But his theory is is you kind of pick a safe list um you know a safe list may include like chicken and steak and and bacon and avocado and leafy green vegetables and you know maybe some pinto beans or or something like that whatever whether it's the paleo or the mediterranean diet or a high fat low carb uh and everyone's a little bit different you sort of have to this is like a journey like a work in progress you need to figure out what works best for you and some of your needs uh some of your needs will be unique due to to you know body composition and medical needs and things like that but you pick a safe list and you pretty much only eat food off of that list and you really don't have to think about it because you know, okay, you you have limited choices. So you start to eat the same meals over and over again. And his suggestion from this book, uh, which which is an amazing book, by the way, it's it's hacktacular. I mean, it's <laughs> hack after hack after hack uh, in the uh, physical fitness area. But anyway, the main point that he pushes is you eat the same meals over and over for, say, six days a week. And then you have a seventh day where you just go crazy and you can have anything you want. So not only is that good physiologically, um, I forget the exact reason why, but it, it kind of, it's kind of like muscle confusion uh, with your with your belly. But it's also psychologically beneficial because it's not like you go on this diet and you're thinking about, oh, I can never have 
chocolate cake again. Oh, I can never have pizza again. Um, it's it's easy to stick to because you know you have six days to make it through, and then that seventh day you could go crazy. So so play around with that. But I really really suggest using My Fitness Pal combined with planning at least one day or two days meal ahead. I mean, you'll know if you have to pack your lunch and do all that good stuff, and uh, you really start to to dial in on avoiding some of these trouble spots. Like when you're hungry, you just eat the the first thing that you find, which is usually a fast food restaurant. And if you're really into the paleo thing and want to nerd out on that, there's and you're uh, you're from the Indianapolis, Indiana area, there is a great uh, service called Artie's Paleo on the Go. Uh, you you can order that once a week, and you can pick that up at any. A local CrossFit gym, and every meal that's made there is is phenomenal, and it's made for you. So, so it's a couple hacks there. You get nutrition, you get some outsourcing and delegating and time saving, all of which we'll talk on the next episode, and you get some really healthy food. So that's just something to look out out for. It's called Artie's Paleo on the Go. I know no, not everyone's from Indiana, but if you happen to be, you can check that out. Okay, a couple other quick tips. Um, if you're working out, doing your exercise program in the morning, uh, A, if you don't know what to do, you may want to look up couch to 5K running programs. I'll put that in the show notes. But uh, another interesting a little time saver, and, and again, you'll want to do time saving as much as you can, especially when you work out in the morning. So, you know, five, 10 minutes before you go to bed, if you get your duffel bag ready with your work clothes and your workout clothes and you figure that whole thing out and, you know, get protein shakes or whatever you're going to eat for breakfast. Um, if you plan all that out, that will save you some time. And trust me, you'll want <laughs> five, 10 minutes saved in the morning is, is worth its weight in gold. So, I've heard of people that will actually sleep in their workout clothes, obviously not their shoes, but they'll sleep in the workout clothes. They'll just roll out of bed, throw on their tennis shoes and boom, out the door, start running. So um, you kind of setting the table and, and starting the day off right. And um, you don't have to think about anything, not even the clothes you're going to wear because you've done that all planned out the day before. All right, that's about it. Uh, books mentioned on this show, uh, Grain Brain, uh, The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. A great, great book, man. You guys got to check that one out. And finally, The 4-Hour Body by Timothy Ferris. A really, really good book. Um, so anyway, that's it. Stick around for extra credit if you want. If not, that's fine. And we will catch up with you later. Um, homework. Homework is actually... Um, <laughs> well, pretty simple. All right. So use my fitness pal, plan your meals for the next day or two. And I have an interesting bit of homework. I'm actually going to encourage you to watch a movie. Um, I know that's crazy since I'm sort of anti TV and whatever, but I want you to watch a movie called fat, sick, and nearly dead fat, sick, and nearly dead. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's actually a movie about juicing. And when I say juicing, I mean like extracting the juice from kale and spinach and vegetables and drinking that as your meal. Now, I'm not necessarily um, want you to become a juicer and that be your main source of sustenance, but it's just a really, really fascinating movie. 
Um, and it really, again, drives home the point of how important nutrition is. So there's a guy who's, who's overweight and he's taken just a ton, a ton of medication to regulate all these issues he's having. And then he starts to eat green, healthy, organic food. And it's a really, really makes a really big impact on his life. And that's really why I want you to watch the movie. It's, it's somewhat uh, inspiring and it's just really cool to see the healing power of food. And that's the main takeaway. And it's, it's pretty funny too. There's, there's a lot of funny parts to it, but it's called fat, sick and nearly dead. And it's, I think you can watch it for free on YouTube. I'll put it in the show notes. If you have Netflix, I'm pretty sure it's, it's free there. It's probably free on Amazon prime as well. So if you're going to have to watch TV, you, you might want to check that one out. So anyway, that's it. And we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There is nothing wrong with your mobile device. You are venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for extra credit. Wow, you guys are superheroes for sticking around for extra credit. That was a long episode. Hopefully you got a lot out of it. But now we are going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, Back pain. I threw out my back in college, probably my third year of college. And it was just never the same thereafter. And it kind of steadily got worse up until... Um, maybe I was about 30 and then I babied it and babied it and it was the complete wrong thing to do. And I'm going to play a podcast for you. Uh, it's actually the first time I discovered Sean Stevenson. So you've heard him a few times on Hackstack and this was, I, I was looking for something for my back and I just did a search and I stumbled across this podcast and it was, it was amazing. And, and had I been able to somehow, magically listen to this podcast uh, when I had first hurt my back, I think I would have been or I would be in a much, much better place. So ton of good information that you're about to hear. But real quick, before we jump into that, I want to talk about the things that I do that really, really make a big difference in my life. So the first and foremost is this DVD that's actually a, a yoga CD specifically for the back. It's called Vinny Yoga. I have no idea why it's called Vinny. Maybe like Vinyasa or something like that. But anyway, it's specifically for lower back pain, hips, sacrum, all that area down there. And at one point, I had to call off work because my back hurt so bad. And I had just, I just had it. I was like, I'm not taking this anymore. I'm going to do any and everything, any gadget, any whatever. I'm going to try out to see if I can fix this back pain. And I found this on Amazon. It seemed to get some good reviews. And again, I'll put this on the, I guess, extra credit show notes. And uh, it was a DVD. It's got three. um, It's got like a beginner, an intermediate, and an advanced workouts. And I, I did this 
and, and ironically, I had just got done listening to the slide edge. This is a few years ago now. And I was going to slide edge my way to a healthy back no matter what. So I vowed to myself that I was going to do this this yoga routine. It's about 15 minutes long. I was going to do it every morning and every night. So right when I got up and right when I, I went to bed. And I was going to do it till my back felt better. And man, I'll tell you what, if it wasn't the slide edge, I don't know what was. Because I do it one day. It it didn't make a difference. I did it two day, didn't make a difference. You know, easy to do, easy to not to do, right? So three day, four day, and then right around a week, that's when I started to notice something. I was like, man, this is starting to to feel a little bit better. And then a month into it, I was like, man, this is this is night and day. So that was a big thing. I actually still do that to this day. I do it at least once a day. I still try and hit twice a day, but. Um, once you experience back pain, you'll do everything in your power for that not to come back. So uh, it's one of my prouder moments because I use that DVD so much that I, it doesn't work anymore. And I had to order another copy. So I, I knew I successfully slight edged that and got a whole lot of use out of that DVD. Uh, I also have an inversion table. I hang upside down a couple minutes a day. Uh, I have, and, and this is this is actually huge. So I have, uh, I work white collar nine to five, always sitting at a computer and I convinced, it didn't take a lot of convincing, uh, super nice boss at the time, but I, I convinced my boss to get me one of those ergonomic stand-up desks where I can literally push a button and the entire desk goes up and I can work from a standing position. So all day long, uh, I just, I work. 20 minutes standing up and I sit down for 20 minutes and up and down elevator goes up and down and I do that all day long. So had my employer not purchased this for me, I would have probably actually spent the money myself to get one of these stand up desks because sitting for eight hours a day, that is murder on your back. So I'll put a a link to that desk. I think it was around $1,200. It was pretty fancy and automatic, but I think there's a couple other desks options. I think there's one called Veradesk, which is a cheaper, more economical way to accomplish the same thing. But if you're working at a desk all day long, if you can get one of these desks where you can actually work and stand a little bit, oh, your back will thank you for that. So that that's a huge, huge thing. So my two biggest ones were the yoga and the stand-up desk. Um also, another another huge thing for me is going to the chiropractor. I, I go at least twice a month. Um, occasionally, I go once a week. And, you know, I'm pretty busy. I'm, I'm jetting all over town, taking my kids places. I probably actually have, have two, if not three, chiropractors. The one I like the most is, ironically, the furthest away. So I don't get to him as much as I like. Um, but I try and make sure I maintain my back that way. And I mean, for years, I don't know where I got this notion, but for years I thought chiropractors were, were quacks and witch doctors. And I I don't, I have no idea where that came from. Uh, that just goes to show you got to do your own research. And then I had sciatica, you know, I had pain shooting down my leg and it was horrible and it was one of those things where, yeah, whatever, I'll go to the quack, I'll go to the witch doctor. If I got to push a voodoo doll, anything to make this pain go away, I will give it a try. And 
And I'll, I'll be darned the first thing, you know, a little cracky cracky. And then that pain went away instantly. And I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe these guys actually know what they're doing. Ever since then, chiropractor is a mainstay in my life. Um, and then a lot of squats and a lot of deadlifts lately. That's been working miracles on the back. And then uh, I never really quite made the connection till I listened to this podcast that you're about to listen to by Sean Stevenson. And uh, just the role of health and vitamins and supplements and, uh, you know, just taking care of your body and giving it the fuel that it needs to kind of repair itself. So, Oh yeah, one more thing. Ergonomic pillow that works really well. Uh, that helps out with the neck and things like that. But um, those those are my big things that I do. So the Vinny Yoga DVD, the ergonomic stand up desk, and the chiropractor, and then the squats and deadlifts. Those are those are really big things that made a big difference. And especially on the exercise front, those are huge because for the longest time I thought. I couldn't do those things. I thought those were bad for me, you know, because I've got a bad back. I've got to baby it. And babying your back only makes it worse. So anyway, I know a ton of people have back pain. So enjoy this podcast. It's got a ton of good information on on the back. So take care and hopefully uh, you will have a little less back pain by not only listening to this, but of course you have to apply the knowledge that you're learning uh, actually do some of the stuff that's that's recommended. All right, guys, take care. Today, we're actually going to talk about back pain. Wow. And we're going to talk about natural back pain relief. And at the end of the show, I'm going to share with you five critical tips to permanently eliminate back pain. Permanently. Five tips. Yeah. So these are the five critical things. So I guess this would be a good place for me to share a little bit, for especially for those who don't know, um, it was in the year 2000, which is 2013 now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 20 years old, and all of a sudden I had a hard time extending my leg. And I had a lot of back pain and a lot of um, pain radiating down to my leg. And I, I thought it was say, maybe... What do you mean all of a sudden? Like, it was just like overnight, seemingly. You know, it's just like one day I was fine, mm-hmm. working out, doing college kid stuff, and then all of a sudden this pain was there. And I kept stretching and doing the stuff I knew how to do for my coaches, but it just wouldn't go away. And so I went in to see the doctor and it was so like at the time I was so uneducated and just (laughs) had no idea. I just went to the doctor because that's what you do. That's what we do. And I listened to him and he told me to go get this MRI done. Didn't ask any questions. I didn't understand why, because the pain was in my leg. Why are we taking pictures of my spine? Hmm. You know, but we went and had that done. And he, I had another appointment. I came in and the pain was worse at this point. And so I was sitting there. I was like, okay, doc, so let's go. What do we got to do to fix me? Right. And he put the MRI up for me to see. And he showed me that I had two herniated discs, my L4 and L5S1 discs. So these are the lower, the lumbar part of the spine. Mm-hmm. So two herniated discs. And I had something called degenerative disc disease. So what, is you what got he diagnosed hit by a truck with. or something? It, that's what it, I thought. I thought it was due to some trauma, but he right. told me I had a disease. He okay. told me that my spine, my, um, my, my disc and my back were deteriorating rapidly. And so I was like, okay, so what do we need to do to fix this? Right. And he looked at me like I was, he's like, looked at me like with his head turned, kind of like I was crazy. Like, and he said these words to me. He said, I'm sorry, son. You have the spine of an 80 year old. There's nothing we can do for this. You can manage it. 
we can we're gonna get you you know a back brace and you might be a candidate for back surgery sometime in the future. A back brace. Yeah, and my brain logically didn't get that, so I was like, <laughs> so. Should I change do? my diet? Should I exercise differently? And he's like, no, this has nothing to do with your diet. He said uh, those no, words to no. me. And here's the kicker. He said it had nothing to do essentially with what I'm putting in my mouth. But then he wrote me a prescription to put something, something in my in mouth, mouth. Right. Oh, so yeah. like that's the logic that I was dealing with there. And to make a long story short with part of this was the next two and a half years went by with me. I got four different second opinions, you know, just Good. seeking out different Good. medical uh, practitioners, but the kind of sad part was they all said the same thing. And well, good for you for not just taking that right. as, the, as the first and only answer. So definitely a lesson we can glean from you there. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Especially when it comes to things like surgery, mm-hmm. potential surgery. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing that should be That's on the right. table. That's right. You know, so for me now, just to share a little bit of insight during that two and a half years, my pain, and it's kind of hard to talk about because I'm so far removed from it to put myself back in a situation. It almost makes me want to, you know, it's kind of choked up to talk yeah, about it. That was real. But my pain was so bad that I had to take medication to sleep at night. You know, I had to drug myself because if I just shifted positions when I slept, the sciatic pain would be so sharp. It's like lightning shooting down my leg. And during my waking hours, if I'd stand up from sitting down is when the pain would be the worst. So I'd stand up and I couldn't extend my leg until I got this one sharp hit. Like I knew it was going to come. So consciously I was afraid to stand up mm-hmm. and like metaphorically, like I was afraid to stand, stand up. up, you know, it was like exactly. this whole, so this depression started to set in and I began to be very sedentary. And also the doctors told me to do that. They right. just said, bed rest, take it easy. Don't do these things. Don't move. And from that place, I, obviously didn't get any better and I was doing eating like a college kid eating a bunch of pizzas and Chinese food and mm-hmm. and hamburgers and and um, just suffering a lot and now here's where the good part starts one night two and a half years into it I was sitting on my bed about to take my medication and all of a sudden I realized that the past two and a half years I had been praying for someone to help me, you know, like why won't some, not praying necessarily asking these questions. Why won't somebody help me? Um, why is this happening to me? Mm -hmm. And what's said is that you ask and you shall receive. So anything that you ask, there's a, an answer for that. And I was getting all this feedback, but I wasn't paying attention. A lot of times this is the issue with people. We ask the questions, but we don't pay attention. The The answer's there inside of the question. And when I'm asking, you know, why is this happening to me? I start to realize all these things were out of alignment in my life, my relationships. You know, I was it's before my wife. So I had like <laughs> I was, quote, talking to five girls yeah. at the time, literally five. Oh, and I was putting all this garbage in my body. I was actually walking around as a much less lesser version of myself, you know, than what my grandmother really instilled in me that I had all this potential and she was like my icon for this because she had so much faith and hope in me and praise and love. And I had not been living up to those standards. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's just like, I'm going to be that person, that that man that my grandmother raised, mm-hmm. that she knew I was going to be. And I started to ask more empowering questions. I asked literally that night, what is it that I need to do to get better? What is it that I need to change to get my health, not just back, but better than it's ever been. 
So it's a whole new frame of reference and a way, way of thinking. And that night was the first night. I don't know how it happened, but I slept through the night, no medication mm. for eight hours. Hadn't slept for eight hours in, in two and a half years. Get out without having to drug yourself yeah. to sleep. I just slept the... so peacefully. I woke up mm-hmm. and then I started on my plan. The peace that comes from understanding. Yeah. So that plan entailed, number one, movement. You know, I was going to stop moving my body in the way that they were telling me to, which was to not move my body. Right. Which is your muscles start to atrophy. Sure. Your body has no reason to regenerate if you don't use it. Mm. So I got my behind in the gym and I started off slowly because, you know, I was having a hard time walking around. So I started off on the exercise bike, graduated to the next piece of equipment, started lifting weights. Long story short there, six weeks later, the six pain, weeks. six weeks to the day, the pain was completely gone. It was as if nothing had ever happened. Now, here's the other part, Jay. That's a miracle. I also changed the way I was eating. I didn't know anything at the time except what was taught to me in school because with this fascination, I shifted over my course of study in college and started studying biology, <laughs> right? And I wasn't really getting the right data, you know? And you can look at it by seeing my teachers. That generally, they weren't healthy. Yeah, you know? that's interesting. So mm-hmm. I was told, you know, to eat more fiber, which was a good thing, and um, eat more whole grains, mm-hmm. fruits and vegetables, and lower fat. So that's what I started with. But it was such a radical shift from what I was doing. It was exactly. like a detox happened. Sure, sure. And I was really remineralizing my body with all the fruits and vegetables I was now eating. Mm-hmm. And a big part was I stopped eating fast food. I didn't know why it was bad for me, but I knew it was bad for me. Mm-hmm. And I started to make my own food, which is healing in and of itself. Because that food, quantum physics will show this, that that, that food carries information Food isn't just food, it's information. Yes, and yes, everything that you energy. eat programs and tells your cells and your hormones to do certain things. And the energy contained in that food is just cheap, disturbing. It's be, it's a system based on greed, mm-hmm. you know, and just really nastiness, really low quality. No intention except for sales is in that food. And I was consuming that. Mm-hmm. Forget about something true is what fast would be the acronym. Mm. Forget about something true. <laughs> right. Exactly. F-A-S-T. Mm-hmm. Fast food, man. So what happened from it's there. it's not even true food. Forget right. about something true. Yeah, it's, it's, that's <laughs> food-like products. Yeah. So, you know, um, from just from those things, six weeks later, pain was gone, number one. Number two, and this is not typical, everybody, I lost... 28 pounds. I lost about 30 pounds. Get right? out of here. Now, for me, I'm one of those individuals, my genetics lends to, I'm naturally a thinner person. I'm one of those people that the metabolism is just a little bit higher. Now, yeah, the issue yeah. was, though, <laughs> because I was so docile, right. that weight still got on me. Mm-hmm. I was puffy as it a mother. Right, you know, right. I was really not looking too good. And I was carrying about 40 pounds of excess on my body. Mm-hmm. And um, again, what is that going to do to my spine? It's just putting more, more weight down, yes. right? Yes. So I, that weight just kind of flew off of me. And that's where my career birthed itself because people saw me. They saw the transformation that took place. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, what? And how did right. you do how this? How do you go from not being able to move, this lightning sharp pain going through your body to now yeah. you're moving, you're fluid, you've dropped weight. And, and I'm yeah. sure it showed in how you carried yourself. You yeah. had to feel a million times better. Yeah, it was like a complete like a rebirth had happened. That's it. And, you know, I went to see the doctor and they took x-rays. Did you x-rays. go back to the same yeah. doc? No, one of the, one of the five. Oh, I so would have went back and said, nah. Here's what happened. <laughs> How you like that? 
he took a look at the x-ray and he said, this is very interesting. Um, everything's looking pretty good. What, whatever you're doing, uh, just keep doing it, you know? And that was pretty much it. I mean, so we were helpful. together for like a minute and he didn't have any logical explanation. I didn't want it. I didn't even want to be there. That's you, the so thing. You're telling me it never even occurred to him. Yeah. I didn't want to sit there and get into some kind of debate sure, or talk sure. about this because I knew I wasn't in the right place because he had it written in stone that I couldn't do anything about this. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get my behind out of there. I just kind of wanted to see. It was kind of proof, change, but mm-hmm. I shouldn't have even done I knew I got the proof right, You don't have to physically. prove them, right. You know, like I knew that I was better. So, and that's what a lot of clients of mine have said over the years. They go back and they see their practitioner and they'll tell them, whatever you're doing, just keep just doing, keep it. doing it. it. You know, because they can't rationally <laughs> break simple. this down. Yeah. However, I have had a lot of great partnerships with doctors over the years because they were interested in like, what, yeah, how, how did this happen? Good. You know, I love what you said about, I wasn't in the right place to even share that or engage it or develop it more yeah. with another person. Yeah. You know, and that kind of just really it resonates. There's so many lessons that we can gain from your personal story. First of all, thank you for enduring on through and not getting in that place of yeah. of quitting. That's the first one. Yeah, I could have. You could have. Yeah. I wouldn't be here. Right. You could have just basically laid down and let it die. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that it sparked that thing in you that you never just fully accepted it. And we talked about this, that mm-hmm. that's one of the main ways yeah. to push back against your deterioration or demise and say, I won't. Yeah. You can't. You're over. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going down that easy. I like to tell people that for me that that night I made a decision like I made a real decision. Mm. And, you know, me studying things because I went back. It was years later when I started to question, like, how did that happen? You know, because it happened so fast. Mm-hmm. I didn't break all the pieces down. And the word decision is from the Latin day, meaning from, and kaidir, which means to cut. So when you make a real decision about something, you cut away any possibility of anything else happening except that thing. So there was nice. no, like when somebody makes a real decision about not smoking, mm-hmm. that's it. They're no longer a smoker. It's not like I haven't smoked in 30 days. They're not thinking about it. They're just a non-smoker. Mm-hmm. For me, I made a decision that I was healthy and well, and my body worked flawlessly. I felt good. All these Amazing. things, well, you know, that yeah. was the decision I made, and nothing was going to stop that from happening. Wow. Wow. And so you so. had to fight for it. That's kind of like that acronym for FOCUS, mm-hmm. and it's follow one course until you succeed. Uh Mm Uh-huh. Yes. Focus for sure. Exactly. And that's what I did. Focus completely on wellness and health. That was your course. And thank you. (laughs) Now, now at this point, I can present the science behind it and help to people to duplicate this. And what really people pick up, even everybody that's hearing my voice right now, is that there's some sincerity there because I walked this. I'm somebody. You were trying to walk it. <laughs> <laughs> I limped it first. I limped it pimp first. Limp, and then, but so Slide I. Slide to the left. <laughs> <laughs> Reverse. Right. So I'm, I'm coming from a perspective of somebody who was told that they had an illness that was incurable. Mm-hmm. And that thing is no longer a part of my blueprint. So when someone talks to me that's diagnosed with an incurable ailment or whatever it may be that they're going through in their life that they think they can't do it, I've done it. Yes. And it's there in my DNA. Mm -hmm. You know, so when people pick that up, there's like a part, there's something in your heart or your soul that picks that up. And it can only be drawn through experience. You know, so I'm really grateful for what I went through. 
one of the right questions you asked, you said, I asked different questions. You said, mm-hmm. why? And the why is because you had to experience it. Yeah. To become who I am, to become myself, mm-hmm. to become the greatest version of me. Which is the question, why am I here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's that cultivation. You develop those capacities, dormant things in you, latent qualities, those gifts that were just sitting around on the floor, they start to come out to the surface because of that challenge. Mm-hmm. And I like to tell people, you know, you don't have to just go through it yourself. You can learn if you're if you're conscious enough, you can learn this stuff from other people. You can learn from their challenges. And that's what I employ right. people to do so that you don't <laughs> because I got to where I am as well because I learned from other people. I mean, just like quantum leaps, learning from their past experiences and mistakes. And I like to call it trial and success method. OK, gotcha, you know, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. so each thing can lend itself towards success if you're paying attention. So then. I got to toss this out there because my heart says just tell the truth. So these decisions, as determined as you can be when you make them, mm-hmm. for those that make mistakes or find themselves back in the place that we began, does that mean we never made the decision or we have to make the decision again? Mm. I just Wow, Jay, that's a powerful question because a lot we, of people. Uh, we, you know, if we all got it like that, we'd get it. Yeah. Even in our past shows, we really uncovered the fact that our minds are really controlling this whole thing. Your mind is influencing your hormones. You have a stressful thought, your body's going to release stress hormones. And it's going to change the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So your mental blueprint, your mental setup is like the key to this whole situation. People have weak decision-making muscles. So they think they're making a decision, but they're just lifting a two-pound weight. You know what I'm saying? Whereas like I'm on the on the squat rack doing 400 or whatever the case may be, you know, like I'm really doing and making that decision and pressing that thing. So how about that's a Tony Robbins quote at this particular time. So we really don't know what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So with the decision making muscles, Mm -hmm. it's developed just like any other muscle, which is through exercising it. How you do that is just by making more decisions. That's how you exercise that muscle. And a lot of people think that they're making decisions, but they're really not. It's more like wishes. You know, it's kind of airy-fairy talk. You know, I wish this was better. I wish I could do this. It's it's really not cemented anything tangible, whereas a decision comes along with an action, you know, comes along with a mindset. And how we develop that muscle again is by making more decisions. A lot of people feel disempowered in their life or they're not aware of it. And just to start to make small decisions to strengthen the muscle, you know, like it might be a decision you're going through with your child or with the school you want to attend or a class you want to take or just a daily habit. Make some decisions to start to incorporate something in your life that you are really very solid about. You know, you make the decision and it develops that muscle. For example, just a simple one, like I make a decision that every morning I'm going to get up and drink a liter of water, you know, so Little things like that starts to strengthen the muscle, and then it can enable you to make the big decisions. People, it's not that the decision is hard. It's just getting yourself to the place where you're mentally and emotionally ready to make that decision. That's what can be hard. The decision happens like now. Like you make a decision that I'm done eating this crap. It's done. However, some people, you know, those muscles are not developed. They're not emotionally, physically, spiritually in alignment with that decision that they say they're making. And you'll know the difference because when you make a decision about something, it's not even in your reality. Like it's not even an option. Mm -hmm. 
There's certain things that I will not put into my do. body. Right. You period. Just won't do. You know, under no circumstance. Mm-hmm. There's no amount mm-hmm. of peer pressure or right. anything like that. That's right. So now we really delved into that chapter because it's important. It is very but important now, because you said it's a muscle. And if we're not ready, that's like putting somebody underneath a, a, a barbell. Yeah, they and can't as, lift. as determined, <laughs> I can do this. Mm-hmm. And they try, they might be able to pick it up. Yeah. And next thing you know, they're pinned to the. <laughs> they on YouTube video <laughs> on but, those one of those fail videos. But the analogy is is the same, and that's very poignant to realize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now, what I want to do is take everybody through some of the basics of biochemistry and talk about what's actually going on with the back, so that you understand from a rational point of view uh, what's going on in your body if you're dealing with back pain. Now, the reason this is important as well is that back pain is the number one reason that people miss work. In our modern society. Oh, wow. All right. So it's the number one thing people are calling off for is back pain. It's a pretty serious thing. And for me, prior to my experience, I thought it was like, what? Weak back? Like, come on. Walk that. Walk it off. Walk it off. Not understanding that your whole nervous system is going through that spine. And if you got a back problem, it can shut everything down. Mm -hmm. It's the worst. Mm -hmm. It's like the worst thing ever. master controller and lifeline. So now here's, so here's one of the things that I did to get well. All right. The first thing to understand is my my spine, my disc and my spine were degenerating. So rationally, if you are able to look at the, the whole picture, you'd understand like, okay, so it's starting to lose these. If you look, to make an example like a house, the um, the drywall starting to chip away, you know, oh my goodness, it's it's never going to stop. How about you just put up some new drywall, you know, fix it. Mm-hmm. So what what I'm saying there is to provide your body with the raw materials, just like you would do with a house, so that it can rebuild itself. Your mm-hmm. body knows what to do. Mm-hmm. It's hyper intelligent. It's infinitely intelligent beyond anything we can we will ever understand in science. Right. But if you don't have those raw materials, your body's going to be like robbing Peter to pay Paul mm-hmm. kind of thing and taking stuff from places that it sees as less necessary. And your body literally will do this. So, for example... There was a book that landed in my in my lap when I was ready. It's called Acid and Alkaline. Um, and that book directly mentioned that when you're deficient in calcium, your body's going to pull the calcium from your spine and from your hips. Mm. I had broken the iliac crest of my hip when I was 17-ish years old doing a time trial in track practice. It just broke off. While you're running. So my bone, already my body was giving me that feedback. No one talked to me about diet or anything else in my life. I just went to physical therapy, and they gave me like a whirlpool, whatever. I was young, so my body healed itself. But I was still made out of garbage. I was still made out of very low-quality foods. And then, of course, the thing happened with my spine. And why your body will do this is that your body needs calcium to clot your blood. So your blood is much more important than your bones in that situation. So what I needed to do was provide my body with the right type of calcium. And that's a whole Pandora's box of issues right there. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that in a second. Okay, so with with the body itself, a little bit of the anatomy stuff, just a little bit. So the spine consists of bones, which are the vertebrae. And then there's these spongy, the, the kind of cartilages, um, disc, mm-hmm. you know, it's like these spongy discs that separate each vertebrae and that provides, Cushions. right, it's cushion, padding, shock absorption. And, and it, really the main thing is it allows for movement and life is movement. And All that right. we were made to move. 
Exactly. I mean, you know, if we look at the design, that's what we were built for. If it's got shock absorbers. Mm-hmm. Now here's the <laughs> here's the deal with the disc. At birth, those discs are primarily made out of water, and now as the spine ages, the intervertebral discs gradually become more fibrous and inflexible. Okay, so this happens as we age, and it's perfectly normal. Now, this particular fibrosis and the stiffening is diminishing the body's ability to for the disc to process water. Okay, oh. so now what's known is that your discs are they're non-vascular. Okay, not like at birth when they're somewhat. It's not the case, but as you age, they're they're non-vascular, which means that circulation isn't getting there. Blood isn't getting there and all the nutrients that the blood carries. So your discs don't get that. Your discs actually get hydrated, you know, get that fluid by a process of diffusion. So, which is kind of complicated, but it's basically, you know, um, an area of greater concentration being pulled into an area of lesser concentration. But there's some all kinds of like seemingly miracle stuff that needs to happen for that process. So if you were wondering, was I glazing over? I was, but I was getting <laughs> parts of it that kind of intuitively were coming to me. So let me just, <laughs> I so, want to be the kid that puts the hand up in the yeah. room. So if I get more, if it's not vascular, the mm. hydration, the moisture is not flowing through there very well. Right. Diffusion means it'll seep in there if everything else around it is very right. hydrated. Yes, there you see. That's it. Okay, just as simple as that. Okay, cool. As simple as that. So <laughs> sometimes you know I try to you know, you but did I don't. Good. Okay, okay. But I could tell you were like, I don't think she's there right now. <laughs> so and I. <laughs> so now, now with that said, mm-hmm. it's the availability of this stuff to happen in the first place. So. I know I was chronically dehydrated. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking nothing about water. I might drink a glass a day. Seriously, I was drinking soda. Mainly my thing was juice, but not like Jack LaLanne juicer. I mean, no. like you buy the juice in the store, yeah. the orange juice and all this stuff. And the crazy part is that orange juice is pasteurized. It's just dumping a bunch of sugar into yes. my body, which will leach minerals, pull the calcium that I need from even my spine. More. Even more. Accelerating it. Even more. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. And so this is the thing that straight to the toilet. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is the thing that a lot of people are dealing with. So just understanding that your your discs are the the last place in in essence to get that nutrition. So you better make sure your body is flooded with Mm -hmm. nutrition and hydration so that it can do its job. Mm -hmm. Especially well, then especially if my my discs are aging. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm and it doesn't have to be the way that we we normally see it as. Mm-hmm. Now, so, but let me let me also make this clear. So, could I go soak in the tub for a long time? That's not gonna do it. I mean, magnesium sulfate, like um, you know, doing oh, some Epsom salt, stop. can help in some degrees, but it's that's not that's like a very very like you another know, bandaid. That's on the outer perimeters, okay, right? It's got to come from it. Because I did mention soda, though. That's a really big issue with bone loss. There's many studies showing that, you know, because it's loaded with phosphoric acid, that people who drink sodas have radically increased incidences of, of bone loss. Oh my. Bone, Their bone density is much, much lower. Um, so, you know what we call it? So, duh. You know we call it <laughs> so, so duh. duh. <laughs> you know, you don't do that. That stuff is just silly. And obviously, something just, else simple. Mm-hmm. Just a weak muscle, that's all. Just a weak muscle. Smoking. Decisions come, all of that. Smoking leeches minerals from your bones as well. Um, the phytates, we've talked a lot about mm-hmm. grains in our in our podcast, in our show. 
And phytates and grains are very well known. They bind to minerals. They bind to magnesium, zinc, iron, calcium, those things you need to rebuild yourself. You're eating all that bread, eating those grains. You're causing yourself these back problems. It is very simple and very serious. But, you know, if you don't know, you don't know. Last thing I want to talk about. are mineral pyrates. Pyrates. Arr, matey. Arr. (laughs) So um, the last one I want to mention here is earlier I talked about calcium. So what people will tend to do in your doctor as well will give you some calcium supplements Mm. since you're lacking calcium. But guess where that calcium is going to end up? It's going to end up. Yes. So studies have shown, confirmed, and you can go, just go to Dr. Google. People who take calcium supplements have a 30% greater incidence of having a heart attack. That's huge. Okay. Because it's free calcium. You don't want that. You want your body to be able to recognize and use the calcium in in a normal way, Mm -hmm. you know, biochemistry. So um, from normal foods. Right. All right. And we'll talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that, where you're going to get that stuff from in just a second. Just some loose running around calcium. <laughs> Calcium's out of control. Ooh, right. <laughs> so now it's really Settle also, down. it's important to be aware of the hormonal impact here as well. So another important statistic for people to understand is that there's also a radical increase in degenerative disc disease as well as just spinal, you know, osteoporosis, spine breaking down for women after they go through menopause or going through menopause. And that's a result of the estrogen decline. So now, again, this is a natural thing, but our transition to that in our normal, in our modern day society is very, very messed up. You need to be mindful of your hormones. You need to eat a hormone healthy diet, eat a, do hormone healthy exercise and have a hormone healthy mindset. And we'll cover a little bit more about what that stuff is. But my work is all about that. You can go back and listen to past shows, check out articles and videos and all that stuff on the site. You know, we talk a lot about that, so I'm not going to get too much into it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we covered some of the, like, biochemistry stuff. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the anatomy, okay? Like, where is your problem actually, um, where's the root of your problem, okay? Okay. Where, Where is it initiating from? And for everybody with back problems, it can be radically different. So what we're talking about here today, we're really focusing on the lumbar spine, which is the lower, lower. part of the spine, mm-hmm. not the thoracic or the cervical spine. So which th- those are still a lot of this stuff applies. What tends to happen is there's something called lower cross syndrome. OK, and this is where there's some muscles on one side are, are underdeveloped and weak mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and some on the other side mm-hmm. are tight and overdeveloped. Right. And this creates this because your body's like a system of levees and pulleys. Exactly. And it starts to pull things out of place. So let me talk so a little bit about picture, those. Yeah. The big one here, what I found for so many people, let's talk about the psoas muscle. So the psoas attaches from the vertebrae in your spine. Okay. So it it attaches from your vertebrae. I see Jay making their face like you're talking about these. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. I like that. I All like right. that. Hey. So the, the psoas attaches from your vertebrae. All the way to your femur, okay, that that big leg bone, mm-hmm. your big thigh bone, mm-hmm. okay, and that muscle starts to become very short by sitting all day, okay, so that's going to start to ex- create the feeling of back pain, but it's really this these hip flexor muscles, okay. Now another one is the, the spinal erectors, so like the erector spinae, like the muscles in your actual lower back. And another one to consider that it might be for some people is the quadratus lumborum muscle. And this is actually the deepest muscle in the lower back slash abdomen. 
And this attaches from your hips to your bottom ribs, okay? This is the lower cross syndrome, right? Now, if you want to take a look at somebody from the side, mm-hmm. like picture the anatomy of a, of a man from the side, and then you see the lower back, mm-hmm. okay, and that's point one, and then the front of the thighs, that's point two. That's creating a line. Like we're creating one part of an X, right? So it's going diagonally from right to left, right? So that's one part of the cross. Then the other part is from the abdomen, to the glutes. That's the other part of the X. Okay. So what tends to happen is that the abdomen is weak and their opposite muscle, the their glute. opposing muscle, no, uh, for the abdomen is the lower back and the lower back is going to be tight and overdeveloped. Okay. So yeah, people that think that their back is weak, but it's mm-hmm. actually overdeveloped. All right. So yeah. they keep stretching their back, but they're not getting the result. So they need to strengthen their abdomen and stretch the lower back in the right way. Let me just go back again because it's going to be a little bit complicated. So weak abs <laughs> and then their opposite muscle when we're drawing that X, is the glutes. So they're going to be underactive and weak as well. So that's one part of the cross. Oh, underactive behind. <laughs> yeah, under. <laughs> and then the overactive part is going to be the front of the, the thighs, the, the hip flexors, what we just talked about, for example, and the lower back. So that's lower cross syndrome. Lower okay? cross. So what we need to do, and I don't want to spend all day on this, is strengthen the weak muscles, stretch the tight muscles. Okay. Okay, and it's pretty much as simple as that. Strengthen so, weak, tighten. To strengthen the abdomens, I like, there's also the rectus abdominis, and then there's the um, transverse abdominis. There's all these fancy words. Bottom line is, do some planks. I was going to say, just, okay. give the, just give me the drill. Planks, bird dog, um, anything where, not necessarily like crunches, because if you're not in balance, you can throw some stuff out of whack. Mm. But if you're balanced, crunches are all right. You know, some people swear that it's the worst exercise ever. I don't agree, but everybody will pretty much agree that planks are awesome. Okay, so that's a really great way to engage and turn your abdomen on, make those muscles fire. And here's a tip for everybody. When you're doing that plank, the key, and I've taught this to so many people, they've paid a lot of money for this, Ah, to make it work, to make your waist smaller, Mm -hmm. you have to pull your navel in, suck it in, try and pull it into your spine and keep that muscle firing the whole time you're in the plank position. While you're trying to hold this plank position. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. most people, they just get down in plank position like, oh, this is so hard. Oh, my God. Yeah, but sure. they're not even getting the result because they're not turning that muscle on. It's on by default, but really make it fire by pulling your navel. Okay. All right. So that's a powerful little tip for everybody. All right. Now, last part I'm going to cover here, another issue that might be the um, tipping point for some people in pain, which is the SI joint. So it's a sacroiliac joint. So it's also known as an SI joint. And this is a joint in the pelvis, essentially, between the sacrum, which is like the triangle part of your, at the base of your spine, kind of like your hip, we would consider, and the ilium of the pelvis. So as you go down the spine, it actually starts to become the sacrum. So I don't want to throw people off with all these words too much, but bottom line is the SI joint is a joint that has very little movement and where those two things come together and and attach, it can kind of be like a key getting stuck in a lock. And the pain would start to be in your lower back or your buttocks because of the sciatic nerves going through that Mm -hmm. joint and become that radiating pain. And it's actually... So people think it's their back, like they might be their spine, but it's actually their SI Just joint. The SI joint. Mm-hmm. So what you want to look into is um, SI joint type of um, therapy exercises. And there's many self-therapy exercises you can do, but also working with a, an intelligent chiropractor as well can be really, really helpful for that. But there's many self-exercises that you can do because 
your body will self-adjust if you do certain movements. Okay. So I'll I'll put in the show notes, I'll put like a video for and I'll eventually do some, but I'll yeah, put a video. Yeah, because getting ready to be a show book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your next book. So the lower cross syndrome is a big issue for a lot of people and it can create something like the anterior pelvic tilt, a.k.a. duck butt. <laughs> so your Donald Duck butt, your, your butt's poking up, and you know, but in the belly's kind of spilling over. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to just, I explained it already, strengthen the weak muscles, stretch, stretch the, the, the tight ones. You got it. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've said a lot of stuff, packed it really in here, and I'm going to cover just a couple more quick things before I get into these five tips. Um, some causes are muscle imbalances, inflammation. Uh, a lot of people have one leg that's shorter than the, than the other, and it could have just been from even you know, jumping somewhere or stepping off a curb wrong or something. Um, or a lot of times people are sleeping on the wrong kind of mattress, oh, you know, where yes. the bed might be too soft or whatever the case may be. So these are some simple causes, but a lot of this is rooted in that inflammation, which is due to diet and the wrong type of exercise. All right. Jade, are you good? I'm good. I'm thinking I just... about I got to get a bed. <laughs> <laughs> I need to stretch, go see the chiropractor, yeah. and make a decision about these grains. Yeah. So. For everybody in the house. Everybody. Everybody get up the grains. <laughs> now, when I'm really just wanting to provide a lot of value and a lot of things to consider, because the back is a very complex but yet simple at the same time um, structure. You know, there's so many moving parts to it, but it's very simple on how to take care of it. So here's some some recommendations for everybody. And some of this stuff is, again, is counterintuitive. Foam rolling. Do you know what a foam roller is, Jade? Have you seen those before? No. Okay. So at a lot of gyms now, they'll have these foam rollers. They're basically these cylinders. They're big. They look like big toilet paper rolls. Mm -hmm. They're very, you know, they might be three feet long and maybe half a foot wide or something like that. And you use it to do some self-therapy and kind of work on your fascia, which is a casing around all your muscles. And you just basically roll out. It's, it feels really good. Some parts are really, really painful, but it feels good at the same time. <laughs> and you work on that foam roller. I I try to do foam rolling every day. You know, I really, really? yeah, yeah. So it's one of my, it's become one of my habits. So 80-year-old spine guy is rolling on a <laughs> foam roller, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So I'll put a I put a link to a foam roller that I use too in the show notes. Okay. So foam rolling. And this one's gonna be well, I'll get to this one in a second. Next one is walk. Sure. Look, people, if you got back problems, walking is something that literally helps to self adjust you. But a lot of people is like, I hurt too bad mm-hmm. to walk. And sometimes that's the case. You you can take a day off, but don't let it go too long. Because, again, your muscles start to atrophy. Your body will heal itself, but it needs a reason. All right. So are we talking a brisk walk, a, just a casual walk, a walk with a purpose? Yeah. What kind of walking? Brisk and walk. And for how long? Brisk walk. I mean, you want to be able to get out there and really start moving your body. Really walk. Walk so, with purpose. Like and you have somewhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I want to share this with everybody is that the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. When you're, when you're injured with a back issue, the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. So moving your body will start to create the conditions where your body will self-adjust, all right, for the vast majority of time. Sometimes there's some trauma or something significant happened, 
but it's usually due to trauma, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that you do need some assistance. But generally, you can get better just by moving better. So treadmill walking, sidewalk Out, walking, outside, uphill, treadmill downhill, is, flat. Tread outside, whatever terrain. Okay. We're not talking about going hiking per se, but <laughs> right. I don't like the treadmill for this purpose because it takes a part of the walking process out of it because the, the ground is moving. You don't have to push off as much, mm-hmm. so it's not the same. It's not it's not natural. It's not natural. And that's right? our whole bottom line. Yeah, so you're getting back to something. Of everything we can talk about, of any kind of exercise, the human body is designed to walk. Mm-hmm. That that we know for, sure, for mm-hmm. certain. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's like, with the Sean Crawford, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. jerfing, you know, just mm-hmm. eat real food. Yeah. Just do <clears throat> real things. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, just what do is that? natural things. Just thing. do real, real things. Thing. J.D. Jert. <laughs> right. Jerf and jerk. Jerf and All jerk. right. So, and then from there. What you I'm, doing, jerfing, jerting? I'm jerting. <laughs> I'm jerting right now. Can't you tell? All right. So. <laughs> you need so, to do that on your own. Here's <laughs> here's the last one that I'm going to share with everybody. And um, this one's really counterintuitive. But once I did okay. this, even my little occasional flare-ups, you know, for me it was my SI joint. I started to have trouble with that a little bit later. And that, was, that happens with a lot of athletes that are, because we kind of tend to be hypermobile in some instances. So was to start deadlifting. Now, for people, especially if they got back issues, you can't even imagine mm-hmm. deadlifting. I'm going to pick this dumbbell up off the floor, this big barbell. I be a dumbbell. My back is, right, mm-hmm. my back is all thrown out. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying to do it when you're in chronic inflammation and of chronic course, pain. Mm-hmm. Get better by employing the stuff we're already talking about. Then change your mindset about it because what deadlifting does is it builds a strong back. It will make a strong back. Mm-hmm. But again, you need to have the wherewithal to do it. You need to do it with proper training. Mm-hmm. But you need to focus on like if you want your back to actually support your spine, those muscles to be like like a machine around your spine and in your in your abdomen, you need to deadlift. Okay. Okay. And I've had women who thought they could never do something like that, like you know, doing their little five ten pound weights, right? Deadlifting two hundred pounds. Get out of here. So don't be scared to start to work your way up, but work with somebody who can teach you the proper form and technique. But deadlifting is powerful because it's something in our human blueprint of picking heavy things up off the ground in order to build our house or to make our food or whatever, to pick our children up. Things that we don't do that much in our society today because we don't need to. Mm -hmm. All right. So deadlifting is like magic for getting rid of back issues. Sweet. All right. So, um, before I get into these five tips, we're going to cover one more thing really quickly, Jade. Is that okay? I, I'm in <laughs> for the ride. I just wanted to talk about the mindset and emotional connection mm-hmm. because um, m- many really evolved um, medical practitioners and practices will tell you that uh, all ailments have an emotional root. There's some kind of uh, emotional, mental, emotional connection to everything that goes wrong with the body. So this is not my field. I I don't subscribe to any one belief with this, but I have seen this to be true in some instances because your back is symbolic. It's this pillar, right, to keep you upright. And just to give everybody something to consider is like what's weighing you down? What are you carrying that's causing you to feel depressed and, and, and 
and held down and you're carrying too much of a load, right? As Erica Badu would call it, your back, back lady. Back lady. <laughs> you're going to hurt your back. Right. You're going to hurt your carrying back. Carrying all that stuff like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So consider that your, wise one. your back is representing, it's giving you feedback that you're carrying too much around. You're carrying, carrying the load of the world around when you can't possibly do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this idea we're carrying around. So what do you need to let go? Mm-hmm. What do you need to let go of? And how? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, also another thing, and this for me personally, it was like, <laughs> it's so funny that we say this, I've got your back. Mm-hmm. You know, who's got your back? You know, so that can be also a lack of feeling like you're alone. I mean, I'm sorry, a lack of feeling like someone has your back, mm-hmm. feeling alone, feeling like you're carrying this burden of your own existence around and there's no one else there for you. Right. All right. And what um, a really brilliant um, doctor shared with me was um, is a lot of, a lot of times related to the father figure in your life. Um, maybe he didn't show up for you in a certain way or that you, you're not you're not seeing the relationship properly and feel that, you know, you don't have that strong pillar, you know, where someone has your back. Um, so and I'm just putting that, that out there to mm-hmm. consider. I'm not saying that this is like stone cold truth mm-hmm. or anything like mm-hmm. that, but it's just something it's to consider re- that an intelligent doctor share with me. Yeah, it's resonating with me, too. Yeah, very much so. So what I would say, rather than if that is somebody's issue that you need to go and call your father up, it's not mm-hmm. about that. Some In some yeah. cases, that's not it's, possible. It's self-work. Yeah, exactly. It's self-work, how you respond and how you're going to heal. Yeah. It's not about trying to, quote, fix Mm-mm. a poor or non-existent relationship. Mm-mm. It's about forgiving and starting to see with clarity and, and appreciation the people that are in your life that do have your back. That's right. Because you can color that with your ideas of, like, not having because you're so, like, you're unconsciously worried about this situation over there. All right? Exactly. So, Okay, that was the that was the emotional stuff. Ooh, we made it heavy. through. Mm, I feel lighter already. <laughs> I hope everybody's gotten a lot of value out of this because now we're gonna put the icing on the uh, on the gluten free cake. <laughs> <laughs> we can have cake. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say. You right. said cake. So the metaphorical. My cake. baby's first word before mama was cake. Cake. Wow! Look at that. Birthday cake, actually. They were two, two. Mm-mm-mm. You so, what you eat. <laughs> I love you, Jay. All right. So now, everybody, get your pens ready. If you haven't done this already, I'm going to share with you the five tips for eliminating chronic back pain. Very simple. Here we go. Straight to the point. Tip number one is to super hydrate. Not just drink enough water, super hydrate your system. If you're somebody with a history of back problems, ensure that your body has enough hydration fluids in your body for it to get to your disc in the first place okay Okay, super hydrate we started a baseline of you take your body weight cut it in half and that is the number of ounces you should be drinking so if you're a 150 pound person 75 ounces is the lower part you need to be drinking more than that Mm -hmm. all right so that's tip number one tip number two is to provide your body with an abundance of raw materials Okay, and this is going to be via, we're not even going to say diet, we're going to say nutrient therapy. I like. All right, so this is via nutrient therapy. Flooding your body with all the macro and micronutrients that you need to build a stronger body, the things your body needs to rebuild you. And I'll, I'll close the show by sharing with people what some places to look 
for those foods are going to be. So that's tip number two. Tip number three is to avoid anti-nutrients and inflammatory foods. Okay, soda, bread, Eggo waffles, Cap'n Crunch, SpaghettiOs. I don't even know how you know those names. Because I was the man with those. <laughs> I'm so good at what I do because... I feel like you all in our <laughs> secrets. <laughs> I love them SpaghettiOs, let me tell you. <laughs> My mom, she used to get the off-brand ones. It didn't taste right. Yeah, Go to all these and the there's their spaghetti rings. Spaghetti rings. Same right, thing with the right, cereal. Right, we didn't have right. Fruit Loops. We had Fruit Rings. Not McDonald's, but McDowell's. <laughs> McDougal's. It's McDougal's. <laughs> and that's just not natural. No, not not in any form or fashion. Mm-hmm. So avoid those things. Anti-nutrient, anti... And, and inflammatory, inflammatory foods. All right. So that's tip number three. Avoid anti-nutrients and inflammatory foods. Number Tip number four is to stay active. Very, I mean, I can't even stress this enough. This was the key for me for the healing process to really start taking place. You can't assimilate all those great nutrients you're taking in or that hydration if you're not using your body, your body has to have a reason to to use to make that diffusion process happen to pull those nutrients into the places they need to be. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to move. That makes sense. All right. So that's tip number four. Stay active. Strengthen the weak muscles. Stretch the tight muscles. And oh, let me throw in one more tip here. OK. Stability balls at the gyms. You know, those big yeah. stability balls. Here's a tip, because a lot of people with back like their back is tight. They, they try. They do that. Just touch your toes. When they're really, in essence, stretching their hamstrings. And the hamstrings, that's not the target here. It's your lower back. So laying stomach down on a stability ball, kind of like like a bear, like you're laying down and just taking some deep breaths, that will really stretch and open up those uh, erector muscles, those lower back muscles. Ooh. All right. So that's a little tip for everybody. Thank you. All right. So let's see. That's tip number four. four. Final tip, tip number five, is to use smart supplementation, all right? Now, it's been pretty clear on the show that I'm not a big fan of supplements. It's food first, but in this case, when your body is very much lacking these raw materials, some things are going to be necessary. I love MSM, methyl sulfonylmethane, MSM. I'll put it in the show notes. wrote a really popular article about it. What MSM does, this it's an organic sulfur compound, and MSM works with vitamin C, which is another one you need, to create new tissues, all right? So if you need new tissues, right. these are two things materials. that help to do that, mm-hmm. all right? So MSM, and it also makes your cells more permeable. So nutrition gets into your cells easier, and toxins, metabolic waste products, get out easier. Nice. All right? And it's fine to do daily. Yes. Every day of your life. Yes. And in the article, you know, I talk, give more details on, on sure. how to do it. And children? Yeah, MSM, it's it's in f- fruits and vegetables, gotcha. but again, it depends on the soil, which mm-hmm. me, you know, yeah. we talked about. All right, yeah. so MSM, nice. vitamin C, vitamin D, and magnesium. D, vitamin D. These are all essential. And I'll throw another one in there, silicon or silica. And some great sources of that are going to be horsetail and nettles tea. Okay. Now, silica, what's, what, what I've learned is that silica actually... Um, biologically transmutate and it becomes bone. It's like a younger version. It's like how we start off as our disc are, you know, this water substance and then becomes more fibrous. We want that same process to kind of happen for our bones. We don't want to eat calcium because your bones are calcium. Mm-hmm. That's an end product. Mm-hmm. We want to give the, the younger thing that can become it. All right, I hope that makes sense. So silica <laughs> can help to become that stuff for your bones. Mm-hmm. All right. 
So really quickly, the vitamin C, you're going to look to um, citrus fruits, tomatoes, peppers, uh, many other fruits and vegetables. Um, Vitamin K is another important one. It helps to stimulate bone formation. All right, it's obviously pretty important, but people don't really talk about this one. It's going to be abundant in green leafy vegetables like kale and spinach, but also you can find it in some other fruits and vegetables. Potassium. This is shown to decrease the loss of calcium from the bones. Okay, and it increases the rate of bone building. Where are you going to find potassium? Oranges, bananas. I more so like the lower glycemic stuff, so avocados. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also going to find it in potatoes. Dulse is a sea vegetable. I absolutely love it. Dulse is a great source. It might be the highest source of potassium, gram for gram. And then there's many other sources. Now, calcium. Here's the big mistake. People think milk. No. No. No, because milk is going to come along with a lot of the anti-nutrients. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's pasteurized, homogenized, coming from a sick animal, it's just yeah, too. It's not too safe, risky. Mm-hmm. you know. Too risky. For some people, though, raw milk from a grass-fed cow can be a great thing for them. Mm-hmm. But generally, you want to avoid this as your source of calcium, because here's why: green leafy vegetables, gram for gram, you're getting more calcium. Really? Even more so. You go to the superfoods, spirulina. AFA blue-green algae. Blue-green algae has been shown to have six times more calcium than milk, gram for gram. (laughs) All right? So we can hang up the whole calcium from milk story. Well, and they eat up all the grass. Exactly. (laughs) Magnesium. Um, Like calcium, this is important bone mineral. People don't think about this. Your body needs magnesium to actually do anything with the calcium. So studies have shown that higher magnesium intake is associated with stronger bones, period, across the board. Where are you going to get it? Green leafy vegetables. We're seeing a trend here. You can't go wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the superfood sources, the spirulina, the AFA blue-green algae. And I like to tell people definitely 120%, if you have back issues or muscle issues or bone issues, use topical magnesium. Not just any topical magnesium. Get the right stuff. Use the uh, magnesium infusion from Activation Products. I'll put it in the show notes. This stuff is like just so amazing because if you're consuming magnesium in a supplement form, your body is not going to be able to assimilate a lot of it. As a matter of fact, it will cause diarrhea if you try to. What a waste. Yeah, so you're just literally flushing it. it down the toilet. It's a waste. Gotcha. <laughs> Last oh, one. Yes. Last one. Vitamin D. Vitamin D. This is a hormone produced by the sunlight on your skin. It controls your body's use of calcium. It literally controls your body's use of calcium. It's so one of the we functions. Need that sunshine. Yes. And it's also an important player in this whole process of bone building. So the sunlight is going to be the ideal thing. But for people who are suffering with these issues, I'd say go ahead and get on a vitamin D supplement. Um, I like the vitamin D drops. I, I, I believe that it's from Carlson's. Or Carlton's. I've had it for so long, I don't really look at it. And it's lasted me so long. Mm-hmm. But that's what I, I like for that purpose. That's it, everybody. I mean, wow. I've given you so much you information sure today to go off of. And I really hope everybody took away a lot of value from this. And please, please, sharing is caring. Share mm-hmm. this with the people in your life. You would be surprised how many people are suffering with pains associated with back pain. Um, even occasional, you know, and they just don't talk about it because it's the number one reason that people wow. are calling off work and uh, these medical bills are shooting up because people are dealing with these back mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. It's just about getting the right information in your hands. 